Come fly with me, let's take off in the blue. Once I get you up there, where the air is rarefied, we'll just glide, starry-eyed. Once I get you up there, I'll be holding you so near. You may hear the angels cheer because we're together. Weather-wise, it's such a lovely day. Just say the words and we'll beat those birds down to Acapulco Bay. It's perfect for a flying honeymoon, they say. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Oh, come on and fly. Okay, Mayor, go ahead. Okay, um, I'd like to um, start off with welcoming everybody <laughs> um, to our city council uh, meeting of December the 5th, 2023, um, closed session. If we could call, um, so I'm going to call it to order if we can have a roll call. Councilmember Kasdan. Here. Councilmember Reyes-Martin. Here. Councilmember Kiriako. Here. Mayor Pro Temple Richards. Here. Mayor Perotti. I'm here. Okay, um, would you like to report us in the closed session before we ask for public comment? Uh, yes, Madam Mayor, having no closed session speakers in the room and none online, <laughs> um, we can, the City Council can now convene in closed session pursuant to the items listed on the agenda. There is a conference with labor negotiators um, for the city, for the employee, the city's employee unit, Goleta General Employee Unit and the Miscellaneous Employee Unit. There's also a conference with labor negotiators for um, the city manager. There is a performance evaluation for the city manager. There's also listed on the agenda one matter of existing litigation, which is the matter of Jorgensen versus the city of Goleta. Um, Mayor, if it's okay with you, I'd like to take that one off of the agenda and continue it to another meeting. That's fine. And with that, we will proceed. We don't need a motion. We just we don't need a okay. motion for that, yeah. Okay, so um, as we have no speakers, then uh, we will recess the closed session. The world We're not too proud to cling together we're strong as long as we're together.
Welcome, everyone. I'd like to bring this meeting, uh, Goleta City Council meeting of December the 5th, 2023, to order. Um, if we can um, please rise for the Pledge of Allegiance. Ready, begin. Thank you. If we can have a report from closed session, Ms. Garibaldi. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, the City Council convened in closed session pursuant to the items listed on the agenda. Uh, the City Council did not meet on the fourth item listed on the agenda, which is existing litigation. It continued that item to another date. Uh, as to the other three items, two labor negotiate items and a performance evaluation, uh, there was no public comment on this item. On those items, the City Council convened in closed session at 4.32 p.m. It recessed at 5.23 p.m. and no reportable action was taken. Okay, thank you. At this time, we'll have um, public forum. Uh, Madam Mayor, I believe we need to take the oh, roll. Oh, roll call. Yes, Please. <laughs> that would be important. Councilmember Kasdan. Here. Councilmember Reyes-Martin. Here. Councilmember Kiriako. Here. Mayor Pro Tem Poor Richards. Here. And Mayor Perotti. Here. We're all here. Okay, now we will have public forum. Anybody that wishes to speak to anything that's not on this agenda? Yes, any member of the public on the Zoom webinar after speak a non-agenda item, please use your raised hand icon. Not on the form. agenda. Okay. Did you fill out a speaker slip? I did, yes. Okay, please come up. Oh, I do. I am calling people in order. I do have oh. Daniel Feisteris. Sorry. <laughs> I always tell people, take a shot at it. First three letters, P-R-Y, the rest of it's downhill. <laughs> Thank you very much for showing up. I appreciate your hard work. Um, Honorable Mayor Brody, uh, Vice Mayor Richards, Council Member Kasdan, Council Member Kiriakou, Council Member Reyes-Martin, and city staff. Uh, the reason I'm here is, uh, hopefully you got a, may have gotten this, but it's in regards to a violation. We are actually leasing an industrial zoned lot off of Fairview, very close to the airport. And I've spent about a month or so now going back and forth multiple times with the city in regards to the violation. Specifically, because my time is short, um, the final notice violation on page two, item number two, unpermitted accessory structures. These are shipping containers, these are boxes. Accessory shipping or accessory units are typically secondary to a primary. There's no structure on the property. So therefore, they can't use accessory structure guidelines. On page six, has the private outdoor storage specifics. In the box there, where it shows residential, commercial, and office, which I've highlighted, What's not permitted are shipping containers as it relates to those three zones. We are leasing an industrial zone lot. There's no mention of shipping containers on industrial properties. We're a small business. We employ three employees here. We service local businesses. Uh, and I think, I feel like we're being crushed here, required to remove our storage containers 
that are allowed on industrial zoned properties. So I'm here before you guys to ask for help. I've spent um, a long time, my son actually runs the business. Uh, he's gone to the, to the city to speak to them. They've said, figure it out, essentially, in short. Uh, speak to an attorney. I read guidelines all day long in my business for the last 16 years. So basically, I took it upon myself to do a little bit of reading and find out that what they're pushing, their agenda that they're pushing, or a bias, I don't know what you want to call it, doesn't apply to our industrial zoned property. Asking for your assistance to see what the next steps would be in order to try to find a, a resolve on this. Thank you very much. Thank you. Madam Mayor, yeah. I, I certainly don't have all the details, but I will get with the planning staff and look into this and we'll uh, get back to the speaker. Thank you Thank very you. much. Okay, the next speaker is Richard Foster. Good evening, Council. I'm with him. He should have storage containers. So you guys made the news the other day. Google News had a feature on their Newshawk on the Newshawk article on the right-hand side there, talking about the <clears throat> Lake Los Caneros footbridge in the 2021 CIP report. That was listed as a priority project. Yet Josh Molina reports that nothing is being done. In the 21-23 CIP report. Alcoa Fowler was projected to be $35 million in the most expensive project the city's ever done. How did that spiral up to $65 million in two years' time? Have we had 40% inflation? I mean, I really would like some of you to start explaining to the community where the first numbers came from, how we got to the second one, because just saying prices went up doesn't quite cut it. I mean, Old Town restriping went from $1.1 million to $5 million in two years' time. I mean, the train station's gone from $17 million to $25 million. Who comes up with the original numbers for these things? If it's staff, you need to fire somebody. Or you need to hire a contractor who actually can give you some realistic numbers. In this year's 2023 CIP proposal, there's a proposal, not that it's being funded, for a $21 million class one bike path along Cathedral Oaks. You guys can't even fix Cathedral Oaks. It's a disaster for bikes and people. On the 23-25 CIAP report, there's over 124 future projects listed, 22 delayed projects, and 11 projects that are listed as priority for 23-25, but have not yet been started. You know, maybe staff should stop looking for fanciful future projects they could spend time on and focus upon delivering what's been promised, what, what taxpayers voted for, rather than making long lists of things you can't get to. I suggest the city stops applying for grants because they endlessly seem to lead you into spending more and more money you don't have. We have $120 million of unfunded portions on capital improvement projects, according to your report, um, saying, and I think the public would certainly like to know how you plan to pay for this. I mean, road infrastructure is going up by $9 million a year of not being done. You got unfunded here, and all staff can recommend is maybe you need to look at a bond measure or, or maybe we can borrow the money. That's not really what you call a financial plan. Please tell us where you think the revenue is coming from. Please figure out a plan and tell us how you're going to actually fix our roads. Um, you know, you're running the city off a financial cliff every time you take on another one of these grants. And, uh, you know, fortunately, next year is an election year. Unfortunately, the damage that will be left behind after you're voted out of office is going to pursue us for a very, very long time down the road. Thank you. Thank you. I do have Karen Lovelace, and I have Josie Castanegla exceeding three minutes to her, so you will have six total minutes. 
Good evening. <clears throat> I am here tonight to talk about the fact that there's no voice for the citizens of the third district. Ellen Connell Heights has no voice on the Goleta City Council. What we do have is neglect, looting, and dumping by the council. Without question, outer Cathedral Oaks between Evergreen and, and Winchester Canyon has to be the worst stretch of pavement of any street in our city. Staff says it will go out to bid early next year, but hey, maybe it will and maybe it won't get the attention it is needed for years. No council members or planning commissioners, ha commissioners have to use that area of roadway. Why is council ignoring the traffic problems at Glen Annie Store Colliery Allen 101? That off-ramp has the highest traffic levels of any interchange in Goleta by 50 to 300%. Caltrans says the congestion is due to poor planning by the city of Goleta. What are you doing about it? All right, no council members or planning commissioners need to use that interchange for their daily commute, so it's not a frequent headache for them. Why spend $33 million on the San Jose bike path when Winchester Canyon crib wall and bike path has been fenced off for seven years? The city staff reported they've watched it, but fix it? Nothing. Why is this bike path in the third district not important? Why is 74% of the high-density housing being ghettoized in the 3rd District with almost half being in Elencano Heights? Of course, 3rd District has nobody on the City Council questioning the wisdom of all of these rezones. Why are you willing to rezone ag land on Calle Real in the 3rd District? How soon before you begin to advocate to rezone larger parcels without a city vote? Why, when former city staff has it, when former city staff said it was essential to build the Brandon 101 overcrossing, has the city instead chosen to strip 8.4 million for that bridge in the third district? Those were Measure A funds that people were promised would be used to alleviate congestion and provide safe routes to schools. How did that happen? Oh yes, we have no advocate on the council. City planning staff just told the planning commissioners to not consider the fact that the county may put 1,500 housing units at the Glen Any Golf Course. Really, do they think the county is playing games with the state? Staff can't possibly think that thousands of new residents at the golf course would not dramatically adversely affect traffic or road conditions from Cathedral Oaks straight through past Hollister. Why so nonchalant about traffic impacts to the third district? Most of you seldom need to fight your way through the Glen Annie Store Cairiel 101 interchange. Ignoring the city residents who took time to submit letters available for all to read on the city website and proceeding with rezoning Kenwood Village and the other um, high density rezones in Elencana Heights is proof that representation in third district is essentially non-existent. The good news for residents of the 3rd District is there is an election next year, and the bad news is that the damage you're preparing to inflict on the 3rd District will be irrever irreversible with your vote. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, our next speaker is Matt Castaneda. And just a reminder for those on the Zoom webinar, please use the raised hand icon if you'd like to speak to a non-agenda item. Well, just to reiterate what... Karen said, we live on Amador Avenue, and the Calusa high-density proposal, I, I don't see how that could possibly work. It's just, it's, it's turned into Rose Avenue in Oxnard. It's really, the, the whole quality 
of the neighborhood and that interchange. It's just, it's it's horrible. It's it's gotten to the point where, it's it's not fun to try and leave and do anything. To go to Costco, it's almost always faster for me to go out Winchester Canyon and come back the back way. It's something's got to be done. I don't know how you mitigate it, but you know, good luck. That's all I have to say. Thank you. And that does conclude our speakers for public forum. Okay. Great. Okay, so we will have amendments or adjustments to our agenda, City Manager. Excuse me? I, I put in a paper to speak about the housing. On, in public forum? Have yes, I believe you. Yeah, is that for later? Yes. Okay. Correct. Okay. No problem. Okay, do we have any amendments or adjustments? City Manager. One second. Okay. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, yeah, we have one, uh, I don't know if I would call it an adjustment, but when we do get to the housing item, uh, staff will present a PowerPoint associated with the four items that make up the, the housing element component. And there was uh, a piece of paper put on on, on your um, spot here today. They, they have added two slides to the PowerPoint. Uh, staff will make mention of those additions uh, because the PowerPoint was uploaded. That, you know, the public had the ability to see it. And so we didn't want anyone to think that, oh, this is different than what I saw. So I think it's, it's been fixed. And these slides were intended to be in there. So that will be mentioned when they get there. Got it. Okay, thank you. Okay, moving on to still me. You have a yeah, I do yes. Have a report. I do have a couple comments. Uh, I'm going to start just by mentioning um, uh, the parade, the holiday parade that happened um, a couple days ago. Uh, that was my first parade. Uh, I missed last year, even though I was new here, new city manager. Uh, we got rained out, which was horrible. Uh, it took a lot of rain to cancel that parade, but we did. <laughs> Um, but we, we uh, you know, redeemed ourselves this year, and it was just incredible. I just want to say that um, I was blown away uh, how big it was, uh, how much uh, community spirit there was. Uh, there were over 70 entries. Uh, you guys looked wonderful in your cars, by the way. <laughs> and, um, and there was, you know, thousands and thousands of people there. Uh, it was just great. And um, the way it was put on by the Lions Club, I thought they just did a fantastic job, well orchestrated. I was kind of at the front watching the staging. And I was just making notes of, wow, this is complicated uh, to get everyone marching in the same direction. I actually just met, met a lion here tonight, Zach, sitting over here, and just complimented him on what a great job they did with the parade. So I just wanted to mention that. Awesome event. Um, the next thing I'd like to do, a little different, you know, we're finishing out the year. This is our second to last meeting of the year. We have one more meeting on the 19th, and so we're kind of winding down. And I just wanted to mention kind of what's coming up. Uh, for your benefit and the public's benefit. I'm not going to go through the whole agenda. It's still a work in progress for the 19th, but there are a couple highlights that I just wanted to mention. Um, so if anyone's interested, please come back on the 19th. That will be the council's last meeting of the year. Uh, the first one I wanted to mention is we will be considering the master plan for Stowe Grove Park. Uh, that was before your council six months ago or so. So that'll come back. Uh, with the uh, mitigated negative declaration, the CEQA document, and be in front of the council for your approval. Uh, also, Equal, the Equal Fowler project will come back, Project Connect. That was before your council three weeks ago, maybe a month ago. That's a big project. Uh, speaker just mentioned it. And so that'll um, come back before you uh, to award that contract to proceed with construction. 
Um, we also will have a urgency ordinance um, on tenant protection. Uh, this is something that the council directed to staff about a month ago uh, based on an event that happened. Um, um, I can't remember the exact street, but uh, some people got evicted. Uh, so staff has worked on that, and that's coming back to you at light speed uh, on the 19th uh, to do that. And then um, finally, uh, we've established the new Human Services Committee, or we will tonight potentially, and that'll be before you to assign uh, members to that. So I just wanted to mention that, that that kind of finishes out uh, a really productive year for your council. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, moving on to consent calendar. Yes, that'll be item A1, approval of the special joint city council planning commission workshop meeting minutes of July 20, 2023. The special joint city council planning commission workshop meeting minutes of July 25, 2023. The special joint city council planning commission workshop meeting minutes of July 31, 2023. The special city council meeting minutes of October 30, 2023. The city council meeting minutes of November 7, 2023. And the special city council meeting minutes of November 16, 2023. Item A2, Creation of Human Services Committee. Item A3, Acceptance of October 2023 Check Register. Item A4, Second Reading Cannabis Business License Ordinance Amendments and Cannabis Business Tax Updates. Conduct the second reading by title only and adopt Ordinance Number 23 next in order entitled An Ordinance of the City of Goleta, California Amending Chapter 3.08 of Title 3 of the Goleta, City of Goleta Municipal Code entitled Cannabis Business Tax and Amending Chapter 5.09 of Title V of the Covito Municipal Code entitled Commercial Cannabis Businesses. Item A5, Santa Barbara Airport Land Use Compatibility Plan, Title 17 Zoning Amendments, Ordinance Second Reading and CEQA Exemption. Conduct second reading by title only, waiving further reading of Ordinance Number 23 next in order entitled An Ordinance of the City Council of the City of Covito, California, amending Title 17 Zoning of the Covito Municipal Code to ensure consistency with the Santa Barbara Airport Land Use Compatibility Plan and determining the ordinance be exempt from CEQA, pursuant to CEQA guidelines sections 15060C3, 15378B5, and 15061D3, case number 23-0001-ORD. Item A6, initiation of 2024-2025 Community Development Block Grant CDBG and CD Galita City Grant Programs. Item A7, amendment to agreement with Canyon Corporation for construction management for the 2022-2023 Pavement Rehabilitation Project. Item A, Professional Services Agreement with Tanko Street Lighting for Citywide Street Light Maintenance. Item A9, Approval of spans, Plans and Specifications and Authorization to Advertise to Receive Bids for the Hollister Avenue Bike Path Lighting Project. Item A10, 2023 Update to the city, City's Emergency Operations Plan. Thank you. Council wish to pull any item from consent. Seeing any, is there anybody from the public that wishes to speak to one of our consent items? If any member of the public from the Zoom webinar wishes to speak to any consent <laughs> item, please use the raised hand icon and I will call on you. I'm seeing none. Okay. Okay. Um, we're not using our, um, we're just going to do a roll call vote, but we're not locking it in tonight. I'll just let you know. Okay. Roll call vote. Or actually, I need a motion first. I'll move approval of the consent items. Okay. Okay. Councilmember Kasdan. Here. Councilmember Reyes Martin. Aye. Councilmember Kiriako. Here and yes. <laughs> Mayor Pro Tempore Richards. Yes. And Mayor Prodi. Aye. I think we're all trying to 
move this along a little bit and get to the topic at hand. So um, thank you. Okay, so eyes have it. Yes, and that okay. brings us to uh, item B1, annual adjustments for user fees and charges. Thank you. And this is a public hearing. So um, I'll read the process here so we don't forget. It's the um, staff has just um, opened the item and staff will be presenting. We have um, Luke Rio, Rio, our finance director, and Tony Gonzalez, accounting manager. Then um, I will, um, they will, oh, I will open the public hearing. We'll have the staff presentation, council questions, staff response, and then, um, and also um, more council questions, and then open the public testimony section, and the public has uh, opportunity to speak. And then um, if there's any more questions, and then council deliberation, and close the public hearing, and um, entertain a motion. So that's the process for this public hearing. Okay. Okay. Um, good evening, Madam Mayor, Council Members. Um, good evening. One second. There we go. Um, tonight, yes, is a public hearing on the user fees and charges update. And just as one disclaimer, uh, due to staff capacity and just overall delay, this would have normally presented in spring of 2023, March, April. So, friend, we had a time machine. I, this topic is uh, more relevant uh, a couple months ago. Just a quick refresher on the background. Um, user fees are for items, um, for services and regulatory fees. Some examples is a business license. It's, we kind of treat that as a regulation program or a permitting fee, like uh, all the various planning permits or encroachment permits. Um, how we <laughs> arrived at these fees is there, back in 2021, there was a cost allocation plan, which we used to determine um, a, a, an appropriate way to allocate the cost of, let's say, service departments. Uh, and in combined with the operation departments, uh, we arrive at a composite fee, perhaps, perhaps or, um, uh, and with, when, when, once we establish the cost allocation plan, you can determine um, what fees need to be established. So hence the user fee study. Um, so since then, um, we've arrived at as, uh, established fees. Um, and these fees should be based on recovery, uh, uh, where uh, state law precludes that. It really, anything beyond that would be a violation. So otherwise, you might be talking about a tax. Um, and so this public hearing is to uh, revisit those fees. There was a public notice within uh, two within the past two weeks. Um, since that cost, um, that more recent uh, cost allocation plan and user fee study, uh, every year there is a CPI increase, uh, consumer price index. Uh, in this particular, it is 7.4%. And to be more specific, if you refer to attachment two, there is a screenshot from the uh, Bureau of State, uh, Labor's, Bureau of Labor, Gosh, the statistics, um, where you can kind of see it's not based on t this month, last month, it's on an annual uh, average. Um, so with that, we essentially apply that percentage uh, where appropriate. Uh, and so that's one aspect of, of today's hearing. The other aspect, as we introduce uh, new fees, maybe possibly uh, corrections, such as the name, 
specifically, what you'd see highlighted is um, in regards to finance fees, there is a cannabis uh, change in premise fee, um, a public works uh, uh, consultant processing fee, which I would add uh, definitely will help with the administrative burden for staff. And with the addition of the Goodlita Community Center, uh, there's uh, a few changes. Uh, one, there, the, um, back in September, there was a garden plot fee. Um, as in regards to the other fees, those remain status quo as there will be a recommended uh, fee study. Uh, other changes were, um, although you might see commercial nonprofit, uh, it was recommended we can take the average of those uh, to determine a private use fee. Um, questions have come about in regards to, let's say, a basketball court. Uh, those have been established at court fees, uh, so not uh, like a judicial court. And, um, and yeah, so there will be a study recommended in the future specifically for that uh, program. And the Finance Committee met uh, on November 27th and attaches the recommendation. Are there any questions? Questions from council? No questions. Okay. Um, questions from the public? Did you want to open the public hearing, Mayor? Yes. Yes. I'll open the public hearing. Any member within the Zoom webinar wishes to speak to this item, please use raise hand icon and I will call on you. Do have Jorge Mariscal, if you'll please unmute yourself. And you'll have three minutes. Hello, I'm sorry, can you hear me? Yes. Right, great. Uh, Mayor Prodi, members of council, my name is Jorge Mariscal and I'm a team member with Romo, uh, Romo and Associates. As you may recall, our consulting firm serves as a project lead for an effort to replace commercial office building at 490 South Fairview with badly needed housing for the community. In working with the city's excellent staff on this project, we recently became aware of an issue relating to the administrative fees that we would like to bring to your attention. Specifically, I ask that you turn to page 17 of the staff report on this agenda item, and please look at line 44 on the page entitled Contractor Surcharge and Administrative Overhead. You will see that the city charges a 20% administrative fee on all third-party invoices. Generally, we wonder how a 20% uh, administrative fee for third-party contracts is justified. More specifically, we are concerned that this fee is likely to impact your ability to address the housing crisis. As you know, many housing developments require an environmental impact report, often referred to as an EIR. An EIR is a perfect example of a third-party contract the city holds, but for which an external entity, such as a housing developer, might be covering the cost. Like many things in the world, the cost of an EIR has risen dramatically in the recent years. They can cost well over $100,000. If you have a $100,000 EIR, the city's admin fee would be $20,000. That doesn't even include the time that would be billed separately for planning staff to be involved in the EIR process. The 20% is just an indirect fee that goes to the finance department. 20% doesn't feel right to us. We respectfully suggest that this fee should be further analyzed and the city ought to consider reducing it. Thank you for considering our input. We look forward to working with you and the team in uh, the coming months ahead. Thank you. Thank you. And I have uh, no other speakers. Okay. Councilmember Cariaco. Oh, I was just wondering if staff could respond to that briefly, if it, or if, <coughs> and if not, just say that you'll you'll be prepared to come back another time and speak to it. Yeah, I, I, uh, good question. I can I can advise on that. 
Uh, in regards to the 20%, the history on that kind of stems back to that cost allocation plan, which we can find on our user fee page. Um, if you kind of go to the basics of it, there's one component where you take the service department costs, combine it with the operation, and you can, in one aspect, uh, determine the public works staff fee, which he was, he was um, uh, mentioning, or the, the staff rate. Uh, that's one component where uh, you can absorb and kind of come up with a composite rate. The other aspect is a percentage-based, which implies um, uh, uh, just not when the staff person is directly involved with the transaction. Um, uh, one piece of information, the, the actual <laughs> recommended, well, not the recommended, but the, the full cost recovery was 25% back in 2021. Before that, it was 15%, um, and that was based on a study from 2008, 2009. Um, specifically what that, uh, if, if he knows the process very well, um, finance refers to that as the developer deposit process. The deposit comes in, and in the case where that 20% will be used is um, if we pay an invoice, it goes through a review process, uh, all the time it takes for it to go through the department. Um, sure, include finance for the time to print the check, and much more of that, I'm getting very basic. And whatever that amount is, is 20% that is withdrawn from um, his deposit. So just to clarify, is the charge related to the amount of work that finance has to do, or is it strictly tied it, to just the value of the thing that uh, it's, they're it's processing? The 20% in my example is related, if it's a, a $1,000 invoice, will the, there will be an additional, so $1,000 is deducted from the developer's account to pay for that $1,000 invoice. In addition, the 20% is withdrawn and recorded as city revenue. Okay, thank you. Council Member Kasner? So I guess I didn't quite follow that. Is it, are we billing for actual costs or is it just a 20% kind of off the top? Both. So uh, I don't mean for the deposit. Okay. I don't, I'm not referring to the deposit. I just mean, you know, they have to include a deposit, and then we withdraw, we take money from that deposit. But is the amount that we actually charge them that they, to cover our costs, and that's based on true costs? Uh, yes. Um, if there's anything remaining, we refund that amount. So okay. essentially, in the case of what I call the developer deposit, there's two main things coming being withdrawn. If there's an hour of staff time, that's built at the uh, rate labeled in the schedule and or if the work is outsourced to a separate consultant those invoices are with deducted plus a 20% is calculated on top of that but in other words the 20% that the speaker referred to is kind of like a bond or something like that it's just available for us to use uh, to cover our costs in processing the it, yes if, the if you send it beyond the developer deposit process um, you could apply well we should probably charge a 20% otherwise you, you might, um, the city might do the work for, I'm not going to say for free, but. Um, and is this, is our system different than any other, than other systems, other cities that is, in terms of how we manage that? Um, my understanding, other cities have this developer deposit process. Um, other cities, in the case of, as we were talking about a library a couple years ago, they had their own uh, admin rate, uh, probably different in this aspect. And do they actually get interest on the money in the developer deposit? Does the developer receive interest? Yeah, interest payments, like it's in the bank? For us, for us holding their deposit? Uh, they do not. Okay. Just one out. All right, well, thank you. Any other questions from council? 
Any other counts? Any other questions from the public? Any member would like to speak this item? Please use the raised hand icon, and I will call on you. I'm seeing none, Mayor. Okay, then I'm going to um, close the public testimony <coughs> and um, entertain uh, deliberations. I'm happy to make a motion. Okay, then I'm going to, if no deliberations, then I'm going to close the public hearing. Go okay. ahead. Okay, thanks. Um, so I'll make a motion to um, to approve staff recommendation as, as written, just with the uh, the caveat that I'd like to make sure that we're giving direction to staff that this is something I kind of want to dive into a little bit more and make sure we're revisiting this and make sure making sure that our fees just generally line up as, at, in terms of best practices with other communities. We don't want to find ourselves in a situation where um, we, we have um, partners that we need to work with to achieve our housing goals suddenly start dropping out of doing business with us because they feel the fees are excessive. And I'm not saying that's happening here, but um, I don't want to have to revisit rezoning conversations in the future because our fees are in some way out of line. That would, that would seem like a poor investment of money and then we have to go look for other places to, um, to find housing. <coughs> so, uh, is my motion clear? Staff recommendation, but with general direction to come back at a later date and revisit. <coughs> I just need a second then. I guess I wouldn't start with the assumption that it is our, our fees are not consistent with uh, best practices and so forth. And I mean, I think. I'm not assuming, I just want more information. I don't, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but you intend actually to have a future item that'll deal with the, the idea of subsidies and so forth on a future uh, coming up in next calendar year? Correct. One aspect is, uh, although the recommendation to go cost recovery, you may not want to do that in every situation. When when would that hearing happen? Uh, we aim for next March or April. Okay. I'll just change my motion to just okay. staff recommendation. I'll second then. Okay. I think my intention is Did clear. you read the motion? Do I, do I need to read it? Uh, it's... It's a resolution, so okay. if you could read the resolution. Right. I, I move that we um, adopt a resolution of the City Council of the City of Goleta, California, rescinding Resolution 22-11, approving and adopting the fiscal year 2023-2024 user fees and charges. I'll second. Okay. Any more discussion? Seeing none, we'll call vote. Councilmember Kasdan. Aye. <coughs> and here. Councilmember Reyes-Martin. Aye. Councilmember Kiriako. Aye. Mayor Pro Temple Richards. Yes. And Mayor Perotti. Aye. Ayes have it. It's unanimous. Thank you. Okay. Let everybody get situated here. You read the item? Did you, did, yes, I have this. Okay, if you could read the item into the record. Oh, before. Thank you. You're so helpful this evening. Thank you. Okay, before we read the item into the record, 
Um, our next four agenda items, C1, D1, D2, and D3, all have to do with the housing element. They include all the actions the city must take under the housing element law to adopt the city's sixth cycle housing element, which will become the city's housing policies between 2023 and 2031. Ann Wells will go into each item in more detail, but the reason we have four separate items is, um, is certain, num certain members um, of the council, including myself, have a potential conflict of interest, including, including under the Political Reform Act, as to property included in the housing element inventory site list. Government officials who have a potential conflict of interest must recuse themselves from the government um, discussion so um, of, on which they have a conflict, including the decisions related to the properties on housing element inventory site list. The housing element actions have been broken apart so that council members who with conflicts don't vote on the items for which they have a conflict and do otherwise vote on the items they don't uh, um, have a conflict. The Fair Political Policies Commission calls this um, process segmentation. For our public comment, we will take public comment on each of the four items, so you're welcome to comment in any and all the items. As much as possible, we'd encourage you to provide comment related to the specific topic being uh, presented on during the public comment portion of the topic. For example, if, you're, if you have a comment on the CEQA, please provide your comments during that time. However, as long as you provide your comments before we get to the decision on specific topics you'd like to address, your comment will still be considered by the decision makers and will be part of the public record tonight. And we'll talk you through that if you need more information, it's a little confusing. So before we start the first item, Ann Wells will walk us through a few things. Not yet. <laughs> you don't have one of these? No. Okay, not yet, soon. <laughs> Good evening. Um, in order for the housing element 2023-2031 uh, to be adopted, the city needs to, one, adopt an environmental document that analyzes the envir environmental impacts of the proposed housing element amendments, and two, formally adopt the proposed housing element amen amendments. And then the city needs to take action to implement the housing element amendments by adopting amendments to other elements of the general plan. Um, and amendments to the zoning ordinance or Title 17 of the Goleta Municipal Code. Uh, that's how the actions are organized tonight with the caveat that some of these actions are isolated for specific properties on which certain council members have a potential conflict of interest as noted by the mayor. Uh, please bear with us as we play musical chairs a bit tonight to accommodate the segmentation process. So the first item, C1, is a discussion action item to adopt the housing element addendum, which was the CEQA doc document used to analyze the housing elements environmental impacts. And the addendum analyzes all the properties and could not be broken apart to allow for segmentation. 
Mayor Perotti has a potential conflict of interest on 7264 Kyrial or the, the Kenwood Village site, uh, which was analyzed in the addendum and is a subject of the next item, D1, which intentionally focused only on the Kenwood site, 7264 Kyrial, so that uh, Mayor Perotti can recuse uh, herself from the action and be able to participate in all other actions not involving 7264 Kyrie Once we start item C1, Mayor Prodi will recuse herself from C1 and D1. Uh, Mayor Pro Tem Richards will preside over the items in the mayor's absence. Councilmember Reyes Martin has a potential conflict of interest at 625 Dara Road, which was analyzed in the addendum, and she will recuse herself from this item and D2, which deals with 625 Dara and return on items that do not take action on 65 DARA. Uh, the second item, D1, is adoption of the housing element amendments and implementing uh, general plan and title 17 amendments for the site at 7264 Kyrie um, As previously noted, since the mayor has a potential conflict of interest on this property, the mayor will continue to recuse for this action once this item is complete, the mayor will return for the remaining items and preside over the meeting. Uh, the third item, D2, is the housing element adoption and implementing general plan and Title 17 amendments for the Dara Road site, um, a property that um, Council Member Reyes Martin has a conflict, and she will return after item C1 and then participate in item D1. Um, Councilmember Reyes Martin will again recuse herself from this item and return for the last item. The last item, D3, is the housing element adoption for all the other properties that was that were without council member conflicts, um, and also implementing general plan and Title 17 amendments. Um, I, if if we need to, we can refer to it as the omnibus packet. Um, all council members can participate in this action. All right. Thank you, Anne, um, for this thorough discussion of the items before us tonight um, and how um, all recusals will work. Now I'd like counsel for disclosures of any ex parte communications that you may have had with anyone outside of the public meetings that the city has held on the housing element and disclosure any information you may have learned that is not part of the public record. This is for ex parte disclosures for any of the four housing element related items. So I'll start with Councilmember Carriaco. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, so I did a uh, Kenwood site visit with the property owner on uh, March 13th before I actually even knew the site might end up in the housing element. Um, I also spoke with the property owner in mid-November. I did not learn anything that's not contained in the public record. Um, I also had a community meeting uh, with concerned residents about that site in uh, mid-November. Uh, Shelby, I did a site visit with the property owner and his team, um, I think back in May. Uh, didn't learn anything that's not in the public record. <clears throat> 35 Elwood Station Drive, um, I spoke with representatives of that property owner in May and July, did not learn anything that's not in the public record. Uh, the Yardy Project, 490 South Fairview, 
Um, I've had some conversations with the property owner and his representatives in uh, February and April of this year um, and in July of this year uh, and did not learn anything that's not in the public record. Um, I met with the property owner of Dar Road in July and again in late October um, and also spoke with a group of neighbors who were concerned about that project in July. I did not learn anything that's not part of the public record. Um, Calusa, I spoke with the property owner once in July, did not learn anything that's not in the public record. And uh, Kellogg Way, spoke with the property owner in July and again um, earlier this month, um, and also met with uh, some concerned neighbors back in uh, early July. That's it for me. Thank you. Councilmember Kasten? Uh, <clears throat> so uh, let's see, as far as the uh, Kenwood property, I've communicated um, with April Reed and Rich Foster on um, email and, and uh, so forth and didn't learn anything additional with uh, the owner, Ken Alker. I met with him, um, I don't know, August or something. I don't know the dates. Uh, sometime quite a while ago for coffee and then spoke with him on the phone. Um, like a <coughs> month or so ago, and that's the only times uh, I've met with the manager, the, I guess the, the lawyer, and perhaps the owner with a uh, 35 Elwood Station Drive, and likewise with uh, Yardy, and in none of those did I learn anything other than what's in the public record. Thank you, and I'll go next. Um, I've only met with Yardy, and that was several months ago, I think, Councilmember Carriaco, you were was on a tour of Yardy, and that's the only one. And I didn't learn anything that's not part of the public record. Mayor Pro Tem Richards. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, I also met with Yardy uh, for the uh, property at 490 South Fairview. Uh, met with the owner and representatives at that same meeting at a, uh, well, I guess a different time during that same day. So we didn't all meet at the same time. I think that was May 10th, according to my records. I did not learn anything that was not in the public record. Thank you. Councilmember Reyes-Martin. Thank you. Um, I did a site visit of the Yardy property in April. Um, otherwise, I've responded to emails from residents um, uh, in the case of the Dara Road property just to explain my need to recuse myself and not provide uh, comments. Um, and I've also responded to questions from um, residents like April Reed um, and others, but I've not uh, learned anything else that's not in the public record. Thank you. That's our ex parte. Um, now it's time for our city clerk to read the item into the record. Yeah, no, this will be uh, item C1, housing element, 2023-2031 amendments, California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA, addendum case numbers 21-0002-GPA and 23-0004-ORD. Thank you, and I have, um, once again, I have a potential um, conflict of interest related to, relating to the site at 7264 Cali Real. Therefore, I will recuse myself from the room. Any actions related to this site, including the current item C1 and the next item D1, um, Mayor Pro Tem Richards will reside over these uh, items, and I will leave the room. And then Council Member um, Reyes-Martin. And as that was mentioned, I have a potential conflict of interest under the Political Reform Act relating to the site at 625 Dara Road. 
due to its proximity to my home. Uh, therefore, I will recuse myself from any actions related to this site, including this current item, C1. Okay, thank you very much. And I think uh, Mr. Imhoff, will you get us started? Or, uh, yes, Bell? thank you, Mayor Pro Tem. I'd like to just start off with some introductory remarks and kind of give a, a little bit of a broad overview. Um, as you've heard, you know, tonight we're asking council to consider uh, and adopt housing element revisions, including rezones of certain housing sites. And I want to just remark that like government jurisdictions, local government jurisdictions up and down the state, we're presented essentially with a force majeure situation. Due to a bias in state housing law toward vacant sites, the state won't accept only existing zoned residential capacity on underutilized sites, non-vacant sites. In effect, the state is making us rezone more vacant land for housing. And there are big consequences if we don't. Among others, if we don't have a certified housing element by February 15th, 2024, we could lose local control over our own local permit process. And the pressure for housing element certification puts council in a difficult position, especially where neighbors are concerned about the intensity of future development and in particular traffic. And with tonight's requested actions, we are trying to make the best of a difficult situation. And we're trying to choose the least worst options available. Critically, we want to maintain maximum control over how housing actually gets built in the future. It's important to note that the proposed rezones are not housing projects or development proposals themselves. They merely set the table for future development. And through the city's permit process, the city retains control over what actually gets built, subject, of course, to state law. And subject to the constraints of state law, including the Housing Accountability Act, we can evaluate environmental impacts and condition future housing projects as necessary and appropriate to be consistent with our own general plan policy protections, which include things like traffic safety and congestion, scenic views, and environmentally sensitive habitat. So I just wanna kinda of set the stage with those broad overview remarks before we get into this and, and keep the big picture in mind. We are trying, we are trying to make the best out of uh, what is a challenging situation, responding to state mandates, and um, uh, um, and be able to move forward, uh, put our best foot forward. So with that, I'll hand it off to Ms. Wells to deliver our presentation. All right, good evening, Mayor Pro Tem Richards and council members um, and, and the public. Um, I'm Advanced Planning Manager Ann Wells and I, I'm accompanied by Andy Newkirk and um, um, Advanced Planner. And then also um, just wanted to flag that our intern Emma DeBecker is here in the audience, and she's helped us with a lot of our housing element too, so a little credit to her. And then we have our housing element consultant team. They're um, here via virtually, and that is um, Nicole West. Um, she worked on the CEQA document. And then Veronica Tam and Jamie Powers um, are also here to assist us. So just um, briefly, you know we initiated the housing element update a couple of years ago, and since then we've hosted many public outreach meetings and um, workshops. We released a draft housing element to the state um, and had a lot of public review on that. We modified the housing element um, based on that initial feedback. And then in um, January 2023, we adopted the 2023-2031 uh, housing element. 
And since then, we've been implementing it. And that has really, you know, just taking a step back, it's been very nice to have an updated housing element that reflects the city, because the other one was from 2015. So that's the, the upside of it is I think we're, we're, um, we've kind of modernized our approach to housing and services and integrating new staff at City Hall um, into the, the program. So I think we're um, on our way to doing good things uh, from that perspective. Uh, but the state reviewed that adopted housing element and they asked for more changes as Mr. Imhoff noted and in that letter dated March 20th, 2023, um, they had a list, and we'll be going over those in other hearings tonight, but they, you know, the key thing is the rezones. Um, that's the key challenge. And um, on that, we reviewed those rezones with you and the Planning Commission and the public at three study sessions in July. And based on the feedback that um, we received, we, we took those revisions including the, the reasons, and we gave them, we transmitted them to the state for their review, and they gave us the drafting compliance letter. So that was kind of the missing piece in all this kind of struggle to get this, quote, certification. Um, and we won't get that official certification until after we take action on these items tonight. Um, but we'll start first with the CEQA addendum. And I'll flag that there are um, written comments, they're logged and they're um, up on the housing element page and they're also on Legistar. There's 13 written public comment letters in total since the release of the council notice. Obviously there's a whole lot more comments that are all up on the um, website on the housing element project page. Um, and just to flag the, those 13 comments, most of the commenters express concern with the rezoning and then the related impacts to the community. And one was in support of additional housing. Another letter expressed concern regarding reductions to creeks and setback. And then one comment focused on the city's underutilized sites inventory. Uh, so I will just hop into the presentation topics, background. We're going to go through the CEQA analysis, and Nicole West is going to help with that, and then review the staff recommendation. So the, the first. Um, slide with content is the general plan environmental review. So the, the final EIR for our general plan um, was certified in 2006 with the uh, adoption of the general plan. And that, that EIR is a program EIR, and program EIRs analyze the potential broad environmental effects of the plan. And in this case, um, the final EIR analyzed the potential environmental impacts that could foreseeably result from the plan build-out and population growth that could occur from implementation of the general plan. There's a lot of words to say, we looked at all the land uses, was the most that you could get out of, out of that land use, and then that's what we, we um, analyzed in that programmatic EIR. And then the EIR also took the policies in the general plan that mitigated those impacts, so it's sort of self-mitigating um, programmatic document, and that reduced impacts um, um, to less than sig significant level in, in many cases, or most cases. Um, I mentioned that the final EIR was programmatic, um, and I'm flagging that because um, individual projects that are um, you know, discretionary permits are implemented within the city. So if the rezones occur tonight, or just as they do today, um, uh, they would they go undergo additional environmental review. So the programmatic 
change is for the general land use, general build out um, analysis. And then you get project specific um, detailed environmental review when specific projects come um, forward. So just wanted to flag that because I think that's a, a critical piece of information. Uh, let's see, if we can just go to the next slide. Um, on the housing element slide on the screen, I, I kind of already ran through the um, background on the, the housing element, and uh, I'll just, but I'll highlight that um, we're, we're at the point where we're taking final action after all this time, and so it's, it's you know, kind of at this threshold moment where um, we're facing addressing the state's comments and potentially getting certification and then we can move forward with you know getting grants and retaining local control etc um, so I think I'm just gonna hand this presentation over to Nicole West and she's gonna run through the CEQA approach and a few other things um, that she's um, so good at so go go ahead Nicole thank you so the CEQA document that was prepared was an addendum to the final EIR for the general plan, coastal land use plan, and I'm going to spend some time talking about the approach for that. So CEQA guidelines includes criteria for determining the appropriate additional environmental documentation that should be completed when a project has a previously certified EIR. And the CEQA guidelines state that an addendum is an appropriate CEQA documentation if the project would not result in new or substantially greater environmental impacts or require new mitigation beyond that analyzed in the previously certified EIR. So the city prepared an addendum for the housing element amendments, which compared the impacts of the housing element amendments to those that were analyzed in the final EIR for the general plan, coastal land use plan. Next slide. The addendum considered changes that would result from the housing element amendments. Um, and those amendments include rezoning of 12 sites that are listed on this slide. And those land use and zone district changes were the foundation of the project description that required environmental analysis and that was analyzed in the addendum. Next slide. This map shows the housing inventory sites and the rezone sites that were analyzed in the addendum. Next slide. The housing element Amendments also included several other changes that were considered in the addendum. These included increased allowable density in community commercial zones, uh, streamlined processing for affordable housing and smaller mixed use housing projects, changes to allowable height in several zones, a revised lot coverage methodology and standards in the high density residential zone and emergency shelters um, as a permitted use in the office and institutional districts. Next slide. 
The addendum included an analysis of the environmental checklist questions that are contained in Appendix G of the CEQA guidelines, and that's a series of um, questions for different environmental topics, and um, the addendum addressed um, individually for each um, question and each environmental topic. The analysis focused on the physical environmental changes that could occur as a result of the housing element amendments compared to that analyzed in the final EIR for the general plan, coastal land use plan. And the analysis considered the general plan policies that would lessen environmental impacts and considered if additional mitigation would be needed beyond that identified in the previously certified final EIR. And again, I'm gonna mention that the housing element amendments does not include a specific project involving new housing development. Instead, it contains goals and policies that support housing efforts in the city. Um, and because the project specific details of any future development is not known at this time, a project level analysis is not feasible. But the addendum considered environmental impacts that could occur from future development, um, and each of those future individual development projects would undergo additional CEQA review and analysis at the time that they're proposed. Next slide. Um, so the addendum determined that the housing element amendments would not result in new or greater impacts or require new mitigation beyond those analyzed in the previously certified final EIR and therefore no additional environmental compliance beyond the addendum is required. I'm gonna hand the presentation back to Anne. All right, thank you. Um, and that just, that brings us to the staff recommendation which is to adopt the resolution and um, and this is the same resolution or this is the the recommendation from the Planning Commission as well and we're happy to take questions of course okay thank you very much uh, it's to council are there questions for staff uh, I don't know if they're questions as much as I had some sort of amendments to the item. So by way of background, uh, just as we go through this, I, there are two points to make uh, first. And, and uh, one is that we recognize the need for housing. And that isn't something that we, when as we talk about this sort of thing, it isn't with the idea that there isn't a purpose or a value or, or a need for additional housing in the community. However, having said that, where we are right now is following through on what the state is imposing upon us. And the state, as um, Mr. Emhoff described, uh, took us from how we wanted to do it. We went through a few rounds initially in which we were aimed to do underutilized sites, commercial sites, and things like that. And the state rejected our approach. We wanted to go with infill sorts of things as the emphasis and the state wanted us to go, forced us to go to vacant lands with willing sellers, and it forced us into a particular direction. So where we had sort of philosophical orientation about what we think is good development and good planning, we were not allowed to pursue that fully. Having said that, we did make choices. Uh, some of the choices that we made 
affect we're emphasizing or uh, supporting one com one site uh, for high density and another site for for not high density, and so. Uh, you know, I, when I look, for instance, at uh, Dara versus Kenwood, it's hard for me to see why one got high density or higher density and the other one didn't, the, whether it's bus access or school proximity or a hill or the roads or proximity to shopping. They're pr pretty similar, and yet one is being treated differently. Uh, and the other thing is, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to, you know, focus on this, is that idea that particularly when it comes to Calusa and Kenwood and, and uh, Hollister. We did not go through an extensive environmental analysis. We did not go through and do a traffic study. None of that took place. We made the decisions on rezoning really without that uh, an, an awareness of that information. And where we are now is when we approve this, it is not a fait accompli. It is not, if this gets approved, I should say, if this ultimately is approved, it is not the, the last story. As Mr. Imhoff said, next we proceed to doing those analyses, to doing that project level work, and to evaluate those particular impacts on a site-by-site -site basis. Um, and. In the, at that time, we'll be able to actually accomplish the things that we couldn't do before and we didn't do before in looking at the particulars of that. I have a couple of additions. All this was just preface in a way. Uh, I have a couple additions that I want to add to the, uh, the resolution. So there's a long list of whereases, and these are things that largely reflect uh, aspects from the general plan, uh, that the general plan includes a lot of things. And I guess I wanted to be sure that we recognize those and that the people in the public understand that this is going to be um, sort of inherent and essential to the process that we follow. So the, the first one reflects, are we going to do studies? Are we going to do adequate studies and evaluate the impacts of all the traffic? We know we're going to have a bunch of traffic being added on a lot of these roads. It might be we're adding some 500 units on Hollister, on um, the west side. Where, um, and on top of that, we know we have the uh, county potentially adding traffic. Each of those is going to add a lot of traffic right in those locations, and especially we know on the 101, the on-ramp and off-ramp, which are already uh, dangerous, we know it's going to add impacts there. So a lot of this is captured in, to a certain degree by the general plan, but as a, as a kind of whereas, I, I wanted to include language that emphasizes how we are going to do the, uh, the studies and it's studies not only they're going to understand the traffic situation, but it's going to understand it in, the, in a kind of collective in, or cumulative basis. So, for instance, we have three or so projects along Hollister. Uh, we want to be sure that our analysis captures all, the, all of those projects that are going to be coming along, not just look at them individually. There's going to be a cumulative impact. And so we are going to do studies. So the language I would have uh, 
is that uh, as part of the permitting process, future housing projects on the rezoned housing sites must be determined to be consistent with applicable general plan transportation element policies as determined by traffic studies that evaluate the potential effects of the proposed projects on local streets and roads, taking into account the cumulative effect of other nearby plan development, including potential effects on service levels, safety hazards, and other adverse effects and transportation concerns. Now, I know it's challenging for you to, about, to come up with, oh, what am I supposed to do with that right now? And let me add, uh, so as you process that, two things. Uh, number one, it's, lar it's to a strong degree language from our general plan, but I also uh, shared it with staff ahead of time to get their impact to make sure that it's not going to be something that's problematic. Uh, that's the, the first one that I would add. So I would add that as a whereas, since it is in essence a statement of what we will do as far as our, our studies. And I, for those folks, well, I'll go to the next one. Uh, the next uh, item uh, that I would add, so this is, I'm going through all of this right now because I'm talking about adding this to the, um, the addendum process and not to the housing element itself. This is to, let's say, the resolution. So where is that long list of whereases? Um, and the, the, the next one is reflective of mitigation. So people want to understand, don't know, is the, um, is, are those numbers that we see as far as the maximum amounts allowable, is that what ends up? Is that, if, uh, if there's 38 or 190 or whatever it is, is that inevitable? And the answer is no, it isn't inevitable. What happens depends on the specific circumstances that emerge from the traffic studies and the other sorts of things that we do, the other environmental studies and so forth. And so it could be that we end up with a different result. Um, and um, so in the general plan, there's one section, which is the transportation element 13.4. And those are options. This is in specific options if, if traffic mitigations are not fully funded. Uh, as uh, others have pointed out, as Mr. Foster pointed out, we have a backlog of public works projects. We have, we have a, a challenging environment to be able to implement our existing public work projects. So putting in new traffic lanes or something like that is going to be difficult for us to do, even if that's a, one of the options that it's available for mitigating the traffic for a new project or projects. And so uh, this particular language uh, is uh, also, the, the same language which was shared with staff, and, and they can comment, is um, in determining general plan consistency as part of the permitting process for future housing projects, the city must apply all applicable transportation element policies, including policy TE 13.4 subject to state law. Policy TE 13.4 provides in substance that if transportation 
capital improvements needed to maintain the adopted transportation level of service at the standard level required by the general plan, including circulation and, tra and traffic safety standards, are not able to be fully funded, then the city shall take one or more of uh, four listed actions, including, uh, without limitation, reducing the scope of the development to reduce the traffic generation below the threshold set by the general plan. So in other words, the general plan offers four potential options to respond to the case where the transportation um, quantity would reduce the uh, circulation, the level of service. And one of them is, in fact, to, to lower the, the level, the development level. And so I would include or uh, propose that we have a whereas and include this language. I didn't think it through. I should have printed it out to be able to hand it to you, the particular language, so that you could read it. Um, didn't think of that. Uh, the, the last one is um, with regards to the view shed. And the general plan includes, uh, has a section about uh, pres preservation of uh, scenic corridors and development projects along scenic, cor scenic corridors. And uh, this is, again, largely essentially consistent with that. And it would say that consistent with the general plan visual resource policies, the design of future housing projects on the rezoned housing sites may not degrade or obstruct scenic views and should incorporate mitigation, minimization, and avoidance strategies as provided by VH policy 2.3 so as not to obstruct scenic view sheds. Uh, and um, I guess that's um, when we previously discussed the housing element issues, uh, uh, council members indicated at the time they supported the idea and recognized the importance of doing that project level work and that that was going to be the source of how we find the way to our final result. And these give a flavor, uh, a sense of the, of the considerations that we will use in doing that to ensure that the new housing that comes in is not going to overwhelm or degrade a neighborhood significantly. And we're going to consider and take into account the impacts of those new projects. And uh, I guess I can. Um, I don't know what the best thing is. If I, if you would, um, I can print out these things, or I can uh, bounce it back to Mr. Imhoff, and he can respond. Mr. Mayor Pro Tem, I can maybe jump in at this point. We still have a public hearing um, and take public comment, and obviously, if uh, the other council members have questions, we'll still you still have obviously have the opportunity to go through all that process. But if at some point. Um, it is the desire of the council to consider the three um, statements that Councilmember Kazan just made. I, I, I agree it probably would be good for us to put those up so you could visually see them so the public could see them. So that might take, take a break so we, can, we could get those. Um, but if, it, if that is the desire, that would be my suggestion. When that timing's appropriate, you let us know when it's appropriate and we would do everything we could to get those up on a PowerPoint slide so you could actually see the words that Mr. Kazan just read. 
Uh, th that would be helpful. Yeah, I, I have to say that I, I appreciate the, the, the comments that you made, and they sound very thoughtful. I, I need some time to visualize, you know, read them and to digest, I think, the, the full impact of what it is that you're proposing here at this moment. I feel a little bit thrust upon uh, just sitting here trying to digest uh, what you just said. I hear you. I didn't think it's think through a process. Um, and Councilmember Kiriakou. Thank you. I want to take a water bottle half full uh, approach to the comments that were made by my colleague. I, I think that, um, you know, I, I, I tend to be more of a visual processor of information, but f from what I did hear, it sounded reasonable, it sounded thoughtful, it sounded like a potentially helpful addition to the resolution from the standpoint of making it very clear to our community um, given what is being to a certain extent thrust upon us by the state of California here, I think it would be helpful. I, I, need to, I, I need to see the whole thing and make sure, but my impression was this is a useful addition to um, our CEQA findings so that our community can be assured that we're not going to take our eye off of the ball. Um, the housing element is just one element of a general plan and the land use element has to work in in concert with it the transportation element has to work in concert with it uh, all the other elements need to work it all needs to work together and I think it might be helpful and might make it a better resolution to have a fuller expression that our future analysis will be consistent um, with uh, those principles. I guess I want to uh, ask our city attorney to weigh in on, on this in terms of what's being, what was proposed and how appropriate it is to include it in this resolution versus uh, something else or what, 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 what do you have? Uh, yes, Mayor Pro Tem. Um, as I understand the proposed amendments, they're intended to be recitals into the resolution itself and not into the actual addendum. And the addendum does specifically state that the transportation policies in the general plan will apply to the housing element amendments. So I think what we're doing here is taking some specific transportation um, policies that are already in the general plan and we're putting them front and center to emphasize the importance of those. Um, and so to the extent that they uh, are already in our general plan and consistent with our existing policies, I'm comfortable with that. Um, they, I will say that the caveat, and I think it's in Councilmember Kazin's um, language, is that it's subject to state law. So there are state laws that can have the effect of overriding our existing policies, and so we should just recognize that as part of um, this proposed amendment if you're um, inclined to consider it. And I think staff is diligently working on putting that together so that you can see it on a screen. I guess I have a question. Another follow-up is, you know, with regard to what was being proposed, it sounds like recitals are, are more just statements of fact, or I don't, maybe you can uh, clarify what the recital uh, portion of a resolution is, because it sounded more like what was being described is that it's, it's more directive. It sounded like it was more like a resolution in itself that this was something that we intended to do or that we plan to have happen. 
um, versus just a, a recital of, of a fact. Um, uh, Mayor Furton, Richards, uh, yeah, recitals are, we sort of set forth the, like, the narrative, the background as to how we get to the thing that we're resolving to do. Um, and so, in so much as these are the statements of, of our existing policies, they, and they're, they're no more than just saying we're going to comply with our existing policies, which is what the addendum is saying, they're appropriate as recitals. I see, okay. Okay, well, while staff works on that, um, I, I'd actually like to continue with questions and, and in public comment uh, while, while that's happening because we haven't actually asked any questions. I know I have some questions of my own. I'd like to see uh, if any of my colleagues have any questions, um, but, uh, and then we can kind of uh, come back to that. All right, uh, so uh, questions? Councilmember Kiriakou. Thank you. Um, can we put the, uh, the land use map up on the screen from our general plan? And I know I'm suddenly asking you to do a second thing when you're trying to do the other thing. Is it, um, Council Member Kiriako, that's figure 2-1 from the general plan without the reasons. Yeah. The, the one that sh has the different colors of the different zones so you can kind of see by color what is where in our city. We're uploading it right now. So the yellow is single family, the purple is business park, the dark kind of hunter green is ag, and then kind of the orange and the gray, kind of the dark gray or brown is uh, medium density and high density. So I just wanted to, I, I just kind of wanted to put this up because I know there's been a lot of, a lot of consternation about about fairness and, and where things are. Um, and I, I just want to acknowledge there's, there's a whole bunch of yellow up north of the 101. And there's a whole bunch of green north of the 101. And the light blue are public buildings like schools, the buildings with the flags are schools. So I just, I wanna point out a couple things. One is, our policies don't let us build on the schools. They don't let us build on the ag, uh, on, the, uh, on the, the large ag, the heritage site ag, like Bishop Ranch is that big green one in the middle, for example. Um, and so there's not a lot of places to build north, north of the freeway. Um, it's pretty much baked in a single family. There's not a lot of vacant sites. Um, you look south of the freeway, and that's really where a lot of the higher densities are. The orange is higher density, and, so, and the purple is business parks. So our philosophy as a city has become as much as possible to try and put density on, on, on transit corridors and whenever possible convert uh, business park office uses uh, to housing because if you have business parks that are bringing people in to come to work, then those workers need housing. And so certain types of development actually create the need for more housing. And so one of the things that I really like about 
what our approach has been here, for example, the Yardi property, which is one of those purple ones um, on Fairview below Hollister, is that's taking a land use that creates the need for people to come in and generate traffic to come to work and then also creates the need to house those workers in terms of how the state looks at assigning arena numbers and that kind of thing. To actually, it actually kind of reduces down the need for future housing and protects us a little bit from future allocations so that we're really, as much as possible, providing housing for the people that already live and work here rather than creating kind of artificial need for more housing. Um, and so if you look at some of the project proposals that we have, and the list was up earlier, you know, changing a property from community, uh, from general commercial to community commercial, um, changing a property from, you know, from business park to putting in an affordable housing overlay. Some of these decisions are actually going to be net better for the environment because there will be fewer tra traffic trips generated by both the need for those people new people coming in to jobs and the need for new housing and where are they going to drive from. Uh, I'm not saying we're going to get less traffic. I want to be very clear. I'm not saying that. But we can mitigate the, the, the otherwise exponential increase in traffic that we're getting through other types of development. Um, so I just wanted to kind of put that out there. Um, let me see if I have any other questions about the CEQA. Um, I think that's it for me. Thank you. Um, any questions? Okay. Uh, well, I had some questions of my own. Uh, so, in terms of uh, what what the, what we're being asked to do here today, this is an updated EIR uh, that w goes back to the, e the EIR that was passed in two thousand six. That you said. Now, wh what would what would what would be the types of things that would indicate that we couldn't just do a, a, an addendum to what we had done before? You know, so one of the questions is, do we need a, do we need a new environmental review? Do we need a, a brand new EIR versus updating the one that we have? And so what would, what, can you describe um, what some of those trigger points would be or what would be some of the indicators that would say we've gone too far and now we need to really start over again and look at a new one as opposed to just a, a dent, an addendum. That would be helpful. Uh, thank you, Mayor Pro Tem Richards. That if, for example, we um, identified and we updated our transportation element and we added in new um, mitigation measures, so to speak, policies that had uh, new roads or new overcrossings that weren't already included in the transportation element, something that's substantial that would change the flow of traffic um, then and that wasn't already accommodated in the, um, in the general plan EIR, then that would require a new analysis because of the, the change in the, the flow of traffic. Um, that, that could be one. Or let's say we, let's say we allowed regional commercial Right, we only have regional commercial over at, at um, Camino Real. Let's say we put a big regional commercial allowance in Old Town. That would draw traffic regionally and something that substantial um, that isn't included in the build-out, in those build-out numbers that are in the environmental document, um, that would probably trigger an environmental, an, an EIR as well, a supplemental EIR. Mm -hmm. 
So we're not saying that that the rezoning of the properties on this list aren't going to. I mean, we don't. We're not saying that it's not going to generate any traffic or any noise or have any environmental impacts. But what we're saying is that the expected impacts that they will generate have been studied over in the 2006 EIR. Is that correct? That's correct, at a programmatic level, because those sites already have development potential. And so then this change in development potential um, is included within that, that range of build-out. Mm -hmm. And I think it was mentioned that any, any project that comes before us after the rezoning has occurred will then go through its own environmental impact review as well. Yes, that's, a, that, that's true. And you, for example, if one of the sites might even have a reduced, well, while we're talking about traffic, um, traffic generating effect, um, maybe compared to commercial. Um, but it will still get um, analyzed in all ways site specific. So whatever that traffic generating effect is will be evaluated in the project specific environmental document. Right, and at that point then we'll have more information about the actual project, about how big it is, how many, specifically how many units it is, uh, all the details with the plans, uh, all the things that we don't have right now. Right now we're just looking at maximum numbers of potential units that may go into a, a, a specific parcel. That's correct. Okay, thank you. Mayor Pro Tem, if I could make one clarifying point, the future environmental review, it, it'll be, CEQA compliant, but it may not necessarily be an environmental impact report, just for clarity. I, I think there was some language in there, just I wanted to be clear that CEQA has varying levels of review, and okay, so yeah. it could be, it, it's any of the different levels of CEQA review to, to achieve CEQA compliance would be part of a future project. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I think I was using uh, CEQA and EIR synonymously, and thank you for cor correcting me. Um, let me see. I don't have any other questions at this point, so I think what we'll do is open the public hearing and, uh, and hear from the public. I do want to make a note, um, in consultation with Mayor Prodi earlier today, we talked about, uh, about the public comment period, and I want to make it clear that, uh, you know, we have a, a tradition, a history of allowing uh, people to cede time to another person uh, to allow more time for speaking. We will allow that tonight, uh, but with a couple caveats. So uh, we want to allow up, uh, only have one person be able to cede their time to another person uh, to allow additional time. So, and, and, that, and the second caveat is that that person needs to be in the room. So we wouldn't be doing that from someone over Zoom. So if there's someone in the room that wants to cede their time to another speaker, uh, we will allow that as long as it's just up to one person that does that, uh, one person per speaker. Okay? All right, uh, so if, uh, if we could have our first speaker, please. Uh, yes, Mr. Mayor Pertim, and to note, this is actually a discussion action item, uh, not a public hearing. Mm. Um, but we do oh, I'm sorry. Okay, <laughs> I got confused. That's the next item. Yes, okay. correct. But we still um, have public comment. Yes, we okay. do. Um, and I do want to ask the public director to speak to item C1 to use the raised hand icon, and I will call on you. I do have four speaker slips at this time, and our first speaker is April Reed. I'm going to do my best to understand everything that's going on. But <laughs> um, uh, my understanding is that the site-by-site -site analysis that was just mentioned uh, only includes the rezoned properties. 
and doesn't consider everything that's happened uh, in Goleta uh, from 2006 to now, although it does uh, consider some of it. Um, for example, it doesn't necessarily consider Glen Annie, which is 1,536 additional uh, properties. So I would recommend that a um, uh, CEQA ERR be um, done for all of these, uh, for the entire city and include the county. Um, so the most recent CEQA review for Goleta was September 2006. Since then, after 17 years, there have been significant impacts, changes to Goleta as a whole. So CEQA EIR, the entire city is necessarily as opposed to just an addendum. As an example, there have been uh, significant changes in uh, the environment, in emissions, in traffic, uh, in air quality. Um, not everything that has been um, uh, considered by the 2006 uh, EIR, um, which is old and outdated. Uh, for example, in Western Goleta, there was a study, recent study, traffic study showing uh, identified high-risk intersections at Hollister Avenue and Stork, Marketplace Drive and Stork, and the arterial segments at Stork Road at US 101 southbound ramps to Hollister Avenue. Uh, there have been significant increased housing in Goleta in these years since 2006. As I said, not all of it considered um, in the 2006 review. Uh, some has, some hasn't. Um, now they're being proposed Oh, sorry. Uh, the nearest fire department needs to use all three of these intersections to get to El Encanto Heights and Dos Pueblos, which will include an additional 1,536 housing units from the county. We need a comprehensive CUCA EIR to review uh, everything that's uh, happened since 2006, not just speculation from 2006 as to what could happen. Um, also, the water district, my understanding is that it, we're still in a drought. Uh, it's according to the Glita Water District's own website. We're in a stage three drought. And in terms of um, Kenwood Village specifically, um, I know there are issues with traffic. There are also issues with wildlife, including monarch butterflies. I know you don't care about those, but that's okay. Um, that have been found on the property since 2016 when that ERR was done. Uh, that were not reflected in that EIR. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, our next speaker is Sean Sullivan. Good evening, Mayor Pro Tem and council members. My name is Sean Sullivan. I have um, a lot of vested interest in affordable housing here in Santa Barbara and Goleta. Obviously, I'm a resident of Goleta. I own a business in Santa Barbara. I have 18 employees. One of the hardest things for me to do in getting qualified candidates to Santa Barbara or Goleta is finding housing. We often have to turn down candidates because they cannot find a place to live here. So we need affordable housing. We need these rezonings to be, to be done for the betterment of all of us, not just Santa Barbara, but Goleta and employers. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker is Michelle Owen. So uh, this item is for the CEQA review of the whole okay, element. So I'll wait till the police 
Amy Beertree. Amy. Hi, I just have a few questions that I would like you to consider as you're making these decisions. Um, in one of the early meetings, Jason Chapman on the Planning Commission had stated that he personally needs affordable housing so that this was a personal issue for him. And I'm just wondering if you have considered how are you guaranteeing that any of this will actually end up being affordable? Have you calculated the cost of building to determine that any of the housing will actually be something that people can afford? And how are you going to guarantee that? I think we use this, we need housing and we need affordable housing. And these are great buzzwords because they get everybody's attention. But when it comes down to it and we calculate what these things cost, is that really realistic? Or are you just using those buzzwords to try to get in housing that will be just like all the rest of what's been built that people can't afford? Um, the other things that I want you to consider are, um, did you take into account the locations of the projects overall, the Goleta projects and also the Santa Barbara County projects? Um, according to your map, many of the projects are close to the same area. You are all well aware of the traffic disaster at the Glen Annie Stork Road off-ramp. The residents of many of these new projects, including the county projects, will be using these same already overcrowded, unsafe roads. How do you plan to mitigate this when you don't even have the money to repair the roads that already exist? And if the traffic study brings up issues that can't be mitigated, what is your backup plan when most of the housing is going to be using these same roads? You have no backup plan and you talk about being terrified of the state and what the state's going to do if we don't have the right numbers, but you choose to put a majority of the housing in the same area that's going to contribute to the same problems. That doesn't seem logical. I also want to restate that District, District 3, with no representation on the council, is taking the biggest hit in the housing element. Thank you for your time. Karen Lovelace. <clears throat> 2006 was a very long time ago, 17 years, and a lot has happened since then. Um, not much has happened with our roads, but there's been a lot of construction. So um, listening to Mr. Kasdan, I wish we had the um, printout and we're able to visually see what you were talking about um, because I, I, that really struck, you know, struck a chord with me. Um, one of the biggest things was that, um, that there's been no analysis or awareness and, and yet we are rezoning anyway. And so, so <laughs> one of the things that Mr. Um, Kiriaka said um, is that, you know, like with, uh, with Yardi, I really don't think that you can assume that the workers are going to want to or be, afford, or be able to afford to live even in Yardi unless it is 100% affordable. And people don't always live where they work. They may want to, they may not want to. They're, we shouldn't make that assumption. And then another number that was brought up, I think, by staff was that there's um, the prediction for the rezoning was 1,143 units 
with 2,960 residents. Again, um, I, I always, whenever we looked at developments, you know, they talk about units. It's not just about units, it's about square foot and it's about the number of bedrooms because we live in a college community and it's my understanding that Hollister Village and Cortona Courts is full of UCSB students, rich students. So you cannot assume that there's only gonna be 2.4 residents per unit. Kind of depends on how many bedrooms there are. Um, so Mr. Kazan, my problem with your statement um, had to do with, you talk about there's gonna be all kinds of um, analysis and protections for all of us um, in considering the projects, the individual projects. But if the rezoning, if all of these, uh, all of these uh, properties that are being considered for rezones, if you're so sure that that is gonna be, we should be assured by that, then my question is, why did everybody on this council not vote to rezone DARA? That, it, it's, it's the standout. Obviously, you know, if there's nothing to worry about, then why isn't DARA? I'm not suggesting that I want to see high density of DARA, but, you know, you're trying to assure us that everything is going to be okay, and yet you all were concerned about DARA, concerned enough to leave that at medium density and not include it in the high density uh, rezoning. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Richard Foster, and just a reminder for those of you on Zoom who wish to speak to this item, please use the raised hand icon and I will call on you. I'll try to be brief. You know, I, I claim largely ignorance about the 2006 sequent document, except that was a long time ago and we've redone our city plans, so I imagine other things have changed. But it's hard to believe that a 10% increase in our city's housing units does not have something impact on beyond what we envisioned in 2006. You know, maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe 15, 18 years ago, they envisioned a 10% increase. Bishop Ranch would have been a 10% increase in our city's housing units. And 1,200 homes at 600,000 each would have brought all of $360,000 in tax dollars. You know, the impact of building these things is every time we build more housing, we're bankrupting the city just a little bit more because there's no way property tax brings in the money for the necessary fire and police services. Doesn't mean we shouldn't build something, but it does mean you need to have some plans for the impacts that that will have on the quality of life in Goleta, which would seem to be a sequel consideration, that if the city goes bankrupt, there goes the quality of life. And traffic impacts, especially when so many of these projects are clustered around your worst intersection in town, I find it hard to say, well, we will do traffic studies later. Uh, reason would say that when you have 300% more traffic getting off at Glen Annie than any other intersection in, in Goleta, well, than some 50% more than others, Putting another 700 units cast at both sides of the freeway that are going to use that interchange, I think you need to go back and look at your CEQA document. Again, this is sort of like, let's brush it under the rug and maybe we can worry about it later. Um, the state's forcing stuff on us, but um, I think that we're trying to slide by on CEQA rather easily upon a very old document. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, that concludes our in-person speakers. Our first Zoom, Zoom speaker is Conrad Metzenberg. Please unmute yourself and you will have three minutes. Good evening, Council. Uh, thank you for letting me speak. I'm here to address Section D 
three, paragraph C of the agenda. It discusses 449 Kellogg and 469 Kellogg Way and the possible rezoning of those parcels. Uh, I would like to advise against rezoning those parcels. Uh, that is currently the home of a uh, storage facility for boats, RVs, trailers, vehicles, some of which are commercial, some of which are recreational. This is one of the few remaining places left in Santa Barbara and Goleta to store such vehicles. The places out on Glenani are all gone. There's one place in Santa Barbara, it has a three-year waiting list. Uh, everything else is in Ventura or Lompoc. This is the last place for middle-class people, working-class people, put their toys that they enjoy on the weekends, and also for a lot of businesses to store their work vehicles. Um, it's a very important facility, and uh, if it goes away, it's gonna hurt a lot of people. Uh, I absolutely understand the need for housing. Um, we're stored on it. Uh, this is just, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul on this one. So anyways, that's enough uh, for me. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Okay, we do have three remaining speakers online. The next speaker is Angela Tripp. If you'll please unmute yourself, you'll have three minutes. Thank you. Can you all hear me? Yes, yes. thank you. Uh, first of all, I wanted to thank Mr. Imhoff and Mr. Kasdan for providing background, um, you know, on this topic. I understand force majeure. I understand um, the concern about our losing local control if we don't comply. However, you know, given that I live in the neighborhood that will be affected by the Kenwood development, um, I have to respectfully disagree with Mr. Imhoff that in the case of Kenwood, that is not the least worst option. I find it to be a very concerning option uh, for a couple of reasons. So, you know, I, I believe it's 160 units that will be built. Uh, if you assume uh, that there will be two cars per unit, um, possibly more for, for the, the lower income housing, uh, we're talking a lot of cars. Uh, Kenwood is located, as, as I'm sure you're all familiar with, on Calle Real, which is a narrow two lane road. You know. I would think ideally that road would need to be widened, um, but there's nowhere to widen it because it butts right up against the 101. Additionally, the Kenwood development is bookended by a bar and a liquor store. We, over the years, over the 10 years that I've lived in this neighborhood, we've had a number of, of severe accidents. We've had deaths. Uh, my neighbor was run over and killed on her bicycle on that road. Uh, approximately at Baker Lane, which is real close to that proposed development. So I would like to caution um, those of you who have the you know, ability to influence where developments like this may go um, to look at alternate sites. Uh, th this, is, this is not a good site uh, for this reason and all of the reasons that uh, others have shared. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Tom Hoffman. Please unmute yourself. You'll have three minutes. Hello, uh, everyone, and can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. All right. Um, I also want to say thank you for 
uh, providing the background um, that you guys have provided tonight. I've, I've learned a lot. Um, <clears throat> I have some concerns that the EIR from 2006, um, in my mind, can't possibly include the impacts that the uh, proposed um, projects or proposed rezoning um, would entail. And um, I, I don't live in the city of Goleta, but I live in the county and I'm adjacent to the uh, Christmas tree farm project. And um, I think that project and other projects have dramatically changed the traffic and other uh, quality of life issues in our area. Um, and when I heard, um, what I heard earlier was that we, we felt we could uh, get away with an addendum uh, because that would not require us to do an EIR. Um, it just it just shocks me that that um, that approach is really going to lead to impacts um, that are not being considered. The other thing I don't I don't know if this is the appropriate time to talk about it, but I saw a slide where it indicated that the uh, uh, height of some of the some of the zoning limitations, I think we're going to go from 25 to 35 feet. And that sort of just got mentioned and brushed aside. But I, I personally am impacted by uh, houses that were put in next door to us, 10 feet from our fence line that are dramatically higher than ours. And uh, there doesn't seem to be any consideration of the impact of that to the people who are uh, already here, and that's a real quality of life kind of impact that I would ask um, that that be considered strongly and that those kind of uh, changes would would be restricted by proximity to other um, housing elements that are that are not at that height because I I am personally uh, suffering from a a two-story building that's very close to my fence line that's just looking down in my backyard and it's impacted our our life greatly. Uh, thank you for the time to speak. Thank you. Okay, our next speaker is Jason Martin. All right, can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. All right, thank you guys so much for, for allowing me the time to speak and I, I thank you all for Kind of considering each one of the projects independently and, and evaluating them according to a variety of metrics. And so rather than kind of comment as kind of as everything that's been going on so far, rather just ask a question, and I think echoing what the last uh, what the last kind of speaker talked about is this height requirement or this height allowable going from 25 feet to 35 feet. Would it be okay if you guys were able to go through each one of the sites? Um, and understand maybe what the height requirement was beforehand and whether or not this is going to push the needle on each one just to give us a better idea of what that kind of extension or what that what that actually means. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, and that uh, concludes public comment. Okay, thank you. Mayor Pro Tem Richards. I thought to respond to um, one comment in particular was about how um, we would generate 
affordable housing. And of course, that's um, a big push from the state that we have to produce the a certain number of affordable housing units. And uh, the big, you know, one of our uh, main tools for um, affordable housing that is, you know, with covenants that are managed um, uh, limits on income, um, income restricted units is our inclusionary requirements. And that's a 20% requirement spread over different income categories. And so that that's our main tool. And ironically, we also, so we have to generate this affordable housing when we have housing projects that come forward. And we also have to defend the inclusionary requirements um, to prove that inclusionary is not a constraint to development. And we have a pretty high inclusionary requirement compared to other jurisdictions. So we had to go a bit at length, and you'll hear about that more in the um, one of the subsequent hearings on the housing element revisions themselves, um, how we had to add additional analysis for inclusionary to prove that it's not a constraint. Um, and on, on that note, um, the, the CEQA item doesn't rezone. So I think one of the last comments was about um, going through the specific parcels and the rezones, and w we will have slides on um, those sites in, in a subsequent hearing tonight. Okay, thank you. Back to council. Um, I see Councilmember Kiriakos. Uh, thank you, Mr. Mayor, for time. Uh, just a just a couple of questions. Um, I'm wondering if staff, because I I know that there is some consternation about what it means when we say affordable and people don't think it's a real thing or they think it's kind of weasel worded or slick. Can you go through what the different income categories are and what the income levels are? Because the way our inclusionary housing ordinance works is essentially it's 20% with some kind of a deed restriction, right? And it's 5% uh, for, five, I think it's a 5% extremely low, 5% low, 5% moderate, and 5% workforce, if I have that correct. Uh, can you just talk about how the inclusionary works? Because my the way I like to think about it is, for if you're a developer, for every five units you build, you get to charge as much as you want for four of them without any kind of deed restriction. But then on that fifth one, depending upon the income type, you might have to be able to accommodate someone who makes the, the, the income of a teacher, which these days is actually considered um, to be low income at the lowest end when you're just getting started as a teacher in this in the Santa Barbara School District. Um, you know, the next one might need to be for um, a nurse. The next one might need to be for a doctor and so on. Can you just talk a little bit about what the income levels are and what the actual dollar value is for those incomes? Councilmember Kiriako, um, I think it's easier to answer the first part of that question about the, the bracketing. So. Um, the income categories are based on median income, and it, it, it's actually a, a table where it's household size and income. Um, and we have different categories. So we have extremely low, which is less than 30% of adjusted area median income. Um, very low, which is 30 to 50% of that median income. Um, <clears throat> low, which is 50 to 80%. And then there's also lower income, so we use that as well. That's less than 80%. That's all those, uh, those categories at less than 80%. Moderate is 80 to 120%. And then we have a category called above moderate in our inclusionary policy that's 120 to 200. 
That's not a state term. That's a local term. For the state, they consider anything over 120% median income as above moderate. Okay, I thought we called that workforce um, with that bracket, but okay, that's fine. Um, So then the second question is, so how do we actually enforce that? Because I know there's a lot of people that are perhaps not trusting that. Like, oh, that sounds good. But like, how do you actually make it work? So Councilmember Kiriako, we condition projects to meet those standards and we have our zoning requirements um, that lay out our preference or desire for on-site development and then what would have to happen for you to not develop on-site. And then we have permit compliance. We have a affordable housing specialist who will track these things, including like at rental properties, we'll go and confirm that the the cap on that rent is what's actually being charged on those affordable units. So we have a, an inventory of affordable units in the city. You'll see that in the general plan annual progress report. Um, we, we keep a, a ledger of that, and then we track that compliance over time to ensure that those, um, those requirements are met for the full term, whether it's 55 years, whatever the case may be, but that that's being adhered to. Okay. My next question is... Councilmember Carriaco, let me just add to that, because in the technical appendix of the housing element in Table 10A-10, we have income categories by uh, affordable housing, uh, with uh, affordable housing costs. So extremely low um, with income limit, and then what that converts to and how much they could afford in monthly rent, and then the maximum um, price of purchase. So we break it down at that level in the technical appendix. Okay. And then there was a statement made that Dar Road wasn't going to be rezoned. My understanding is the plan does anticipate rezoning up to medium, which is up to 20 units per acre. And so it's currently allowed to have up to 12 units. I think there's 12 lots, right? And the rezone, I know this is not till the next item, but since it came up in public comment, I want to address it kind of in the moment. Um, my understanding is it's going from 12 units up to 84 if we do rezone. Is that correct? That's correct, and that's included in the addendum. The analysis includes that assumption. Oh, okay, I just wanted to get that clear because I think there's an impression out there that nothing's happening at Dar Road, and it's actually like quadrupling the amount of housing that's allowed there. Um, let's see here. Um, the last thing, I know there was some mention about are we taking into account uh, where the county is putting its its housing, and so studying kind of the cumulative, the cumulative growth. So my understanding is there are currently two thousand six hundred and thirty four units being proposed by the county that would adjoin Galita on the eastern end, not the western end, on the eastern end. Uh, twelve hundred and twelve units at Georgie, three hundred units at Saint Athanasius. 246 units at the Scott property, 218 units at the Equal property, 192 at one of the CARED sites, 76 units at the second CARED site, and 390 units at the third CARED site for a total of 2634. And I believe Glen Annie got reduced down to 1,000 units by the county from their original uh, anticipated 1,500. So I just want to kind of put that out there from a sense of proportionality. Eastern Galita is taking its lumps, too, when it comes to increased density being caused by the need for the county to provide additional housing and meet their own mandate. Um, that's it for me. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Kasdan. Uh, yeah, so first, uh, with respect to affordable housing, it's a really confusing process that we have here. So 
when we've been talking about low income and so forth in the context of this housing element, it has had nothing to do with those percentages that have been, people have been talking about. It has been referring to the density. The density that we've been including on those properties has been the basis for calling one parcel or one site um, low income uh, as opposed to another. After we pass through the, and over wherever, after the housing element is uh, hypothetically, or hopefully, I guess, approved, then we enter a new phase, and the county then evaluates our progress in actually converting those sites that we developed before labeled as low income or something like that. Correct me if I tell, say, tell this tale incorrectly, since I'm not really any kind of expert on this. Um, but then they look and see how have we done in terms of progress in implementing housing that is affordable, and then those categories, 30% uh, average medium, medium income, et cetera, those become relevant, and those are the targets. Those, those are where they're going to hold us accountable in the future. Uh, most of those, I'm not sure about that so-called workforce housing, but most of those are below market rate. So it's going to require that the city come up with a mechanism to ensure that the rates are, in essence, affordable that it's going to be not market rates like we see at Hollister Village where it's you know, $4,000 for a two-bedroom apartment or whatever it is. Uh, and as was described by everyone else, we have a couple of tools already. One of them is a regulatory tool that 20% of any new developments, any new housing that comes in will have to be affordable and there'll be degrees which of those categories it applies to. We'll look for other ways, too. We'll use some of the fees that we collect to try and subsidize. Um, we'll work with developers like uh, People Self-Help Housing and others, as we did with Hollister, excuse me, with um, Heritage, Heritage Ridge. Ridge. Thank you. Um, to where we put in over 100 units of that's housing that will be affordable. So we will apply as many different tools as we can that will come at the project level. So right now we have no sort of, um, we've no expectations, if you will. We've not done anything. We have our, our inclusionary housing on the books, but, but we have not analyzed any of that. We have not tried to implement that, and we make other, other than having the affordable housing uh, ordinance assumptions about it. We will address that as we go forward. And at, in the same way, we will address numbers of bedrooms, for instance, that, uh, that you raised. Uh, you know, personally, I think we need, like, small uh, to accommodate a lot of those. And uh, I believe I mentioned it before. Uh, and, and one last thing, as far as there was a, a one or two comments, uh, as far as the cumulative impacts, Glen Annie, how are we going to think that through? And that will come in some of those studies, like those traffic studies. I will, one of our CIP projects uh, is the 9102 Stork Road Corridor Study, and uh, that's $350,000, that's all. I can't ask for um, 
my colleagues to support that now because we're not agendized for it. But I will. <laughs> and we will try and do that because you're absolutely right. And, and you know, any of these things, it would be utter ignorance, utterly blind to not look at what is coming uh, outside of our, our boundaries, especially, you know, to me, especially Glen Annie, the idea that that is the impacts of that are not going to be felt in the city is insane. Uh, and, and so we have to accommodate that, and, and we have to consider that. Uh, and likewise, I guess we'll see what happens as far as the South, Count the South Patterson Ag Block and what they ultimately come up with and, and how, we, how we address that. Uh, I think um, I'll leave it at that right now. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I wanted to go back. If, um, if, if you could put up um, slide number seven from the presentation, would that be possible? It was the map. Uh, that showed the uh, sites inventory, including the rezone sites. So, yeah, I, I just want to go back to this uh, map and just draw attention. So, this shows uh, all of the sites that we have uh, at that that are in the the housing element that we've submitted or that we will submit, um, including the sites that we've rezoned and then the sites that had been previously on the list uh, that were the more the infill. So, I just want to make note that um, this you know, shows that we have parcels all over the city. This is a citywide exercise that included uh, land and, and parcels that are uh, around the city. And, it, and I know that some people feel like that, that it may have been concentrated around their area or certain areas, but um, if we look at this map and then actually take into account, since we were just mentioning about uh, previously uh, constructed uh, uh, housing facilities, then there would be a lot more of those um, in, I would say, District 2 in the southeast uh, uh, quadrant um, of, of the city as well. So those are all cumulative impacts that we're feeling. So I just want to make a note of that, that this is really something that is distributed uh, across the city. Uh, the other point was with regard to uh, what the 2006 EIR had envisioned as, a, 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 as the population increase expected or, or at least what was analyzed at that point. And I, I believe from um, my memory in reading the staff report that it had uh, analyzed an increase of up to, uh, to uh, 38,000 residents um, by the 2030. That was the, the time horizon of that report. So I, you know, I think that what we're looking at here is still within that, uh, that amount that, you know, that, that had been previously analyzed. So I just want to make a point about that. I think at this point, um, do we have a slide with some information about going back to the Kasdan proposal? Mayor Pretend, we do have that wording and uh, we can put that up. Okay. Is that, and and while we're doing that, that? Okay. Mayor Pertem, if, if I may, I'd just like to um, uh, comment and underline a couple of different points that I think were made here that are important. Um, the, the, the first one is the, the one that you just made, that the programmatic EIR um, from 2006, just it, it's based on build out. It's very general, and so we um, we can say that uh, that the action tonight um, that that EIR does cover um, the uh, the development capacity that's being proposed. The, the second point is just kind of how housing law works, and I just want to touch on that very briefly and say that there there are a couple different layers too, and a couple of different stages in in what 
housing law requires of us and other local government jurisdictions in California. Um, the, the first step is simply that each local government jurisdiction has to zone adequate capacity to accommodate their share of the regional housing needs. So the city of Goleta got a, a, a certain uh, quota, eight, 1,837 units. We have to demonstrate that we have capacity to accommodate that housing need at all affordability levels. And that, that overall arena number is broken down into components at different levels of affordability. And as uh, Councilmember Kasdan highlighted, the state takes density as a proxy for um, that level of affordability for, for you know, lower income units. So that this, that's, that's the first thing we need to do, and that's really what the council's asked to do tonight. Um, then through that eight year period, there are other legal requirements, SB 35 is one of them. Typically cities, we don't actually have to build the housing ourselves, but we have to show, we report annually to the state on our progress, we have to show that we're staying on pace at all levels of affordability. But the state doesn't care where those specific units are delivered as long as we stay on pace. So there's no necessary connection between um, what we zone for and what actually gets built. If, for example, we have a different project, say the Yardi project, that provides a whole bunch of other housing at affordability levels, well, we can count that and we can report that. So I, I just want to point out that this is a, that, that it's that is very complex, and there are different stages to this, and we have to um, we we we're very cognizant of that as as we're going through this process. The the last point is is just with respect to the county's housing element and their site selection. So um, the county was scheduled to adopt their housing element today. Coincidentally, I don't know if they actually took that action. Um, I believe they did, but. Um, at any event, they deferred the actual selection of their housing sites. And how they did that and how they you know, got the state to sign off on that, I don't know. But they, they included in their housing list a laundry list of possible sites. And they've deferred to a later date the actual selection of those sites and the environmental analysis of those sites. So the, the, you know, that isn't written in stone. We don't know yet, and we may yet have an opportunity, and members of our community may have an opportunity to weigh in and participate in that process. In fact, the county has invited members of the community to participate in that process, and they have a great online tool um, which uh, I believe we have referenced on our website as well. I think we have a link to it. If you go to our housing elements, you can see that. Um, but where members of the community can put up different mixes of housing sites because the county is facing the same challenge we are. They have to accommodate their share of the regional housing need. And the question is, how do they do it? You know, what is the, what, how do they make the best of a difficult situation? So we have, we as a city have the opportunity to weigh in as a neighbor jurisdiction and every member of the community has the, has the ability to participate in, in the county's process and weigh in. And we certainly may have some things to say about, about that selection. So I just that's um, that's just by way of background. I think we do have the wording up um, that uh, Councilmember Kasdan proposed, and as he indicated, he did share that with um, city staff earlier today and with the city attorney's office, and we have reviewed that. Um, these are, as he suggested, um, recitals. These would be whereases in the resolution that adopts the addendum today that underline what's fundamentally a truism, which is that. In the subsequent review of any specific development proposal that happens on sites that are rezoned, we have to make certain findings. And the, and the critical finding is consistency with our general plan. So these whereas is simply state a fact 
they, they restate, in essence, certain policies that are in the general plan with, and the point is to, I think, and Council Member Kasten can clarify this, but to underline some of the particular policies, like the transportation element policies, that apply and that we as staff and that the city decision makers have to apply as part of the, um, the review of projects and that members of the public can weigh in on. And it also highlights some of the process steps, like how we assess traffic impacts through traffic studies and that we and that those have to take into account um, the cumulative effect of of other nearby plan development so I, I don't we as staff don't have an objection to this language we we can support it as it's drafted because it really just um, highlights certain policies of the general plan that apply anyway and there's no harm in doing that um, it emphasizes the point that I made at the beginning of this, that we have a permit process ahead of us where we can evaluate the specific development proposed on any given um, site that is rezoned today. So I'll stop there, and, um, and you have the wording there which you can look at. Thank you. All right, uh, back to council. Mr. Kazan, would you like to elaborate any more or uh, offer anything more? I guess with the, that last point that um, Mr. Imhoff mentioned, as far as the Yardy property, when we, the way it worked out is it didn't count almost, for the most part, when we were trying to hit our low income, and I put low income in quotes, it w didn't count. It was essentially surplus. So to the extent that another property that we reduce another property because of traffic, because of the environment, because of whatever. We have that Yardy property's inventory, that housing there, as available to make up that difference. So as we go forward and, and look at these things on a project-by-project -project basis, it doesn't mean that it is an inevitable outcome, whatever that number, magic number was that we had as the maximum amount. It doesn't mean that that is going to be the final number. It'll depend on the site and the specifics of it. That's it. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, I guess my question is, uh, where exactly would the, these three uh, recitals fall into uh, our draft resolution? Has, uh, City Attorney, do you have a, a Mayor Pro Tem? That's a good proposal? question. Um, I think towards the end, I would recommend. Uh, typically, the last few recitals sort of say we took action on this day. So I would say maybe before, before the like sort of the legislative history um, recitals. So I think that looks like the last. Legislative history or the first legislative history recital is sort of the fifth recital from the bottom, starting with the Planning Commission, um, conducted a duly noticed public hearing, and then it kind of runs through the legislative history from there. So perhaps immediately preceding that, it's um, I don't know if staff has that would be one place to do it. I don't know staff if you have a different location you prefer. Yeah, I think that there would be fine. Also the um, right before the last one uh, would also work, but I think either, either place would, would be a good location. Appropriate, yeah, I think. Do you have a preference, Council Member Kazan? Yeah. Leave it up. I, I leave it up to you, where you think appropriate. Where it fits with the flow, you know? 
Yeah, I I suggest before the planning commission just so that it doesn't interrupt the the legislative okay. history. So recitals. that would be after the the second sequa where so there were like two whereas is that say sequa so it would be after that second one. Correct. So after between the whereas under sequa and the sequa guidelines and as referenced below the project shall mean the amendments mm -hmm. to the housing element and then a above where the Planning Commission conducted the duly noticed hearing. Okay. That's fine. Uh, are, are we all clear about where that is proposed? And that would be all three of them as a, as a separate whereas, each one. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. Uh, do, do we have a, do you want to make a motion? Yeah, I can make a motion. Uh, so I move that we adopt resolution number 23 next in line entitled the resolution of the City Council of the City of Goleta, California to make findings pursuant to public resources code section 21166 and to adopt the housing element 2023 to 2031 amendments addendum to the general plan slash coastal land use plan final environmental impact report state clearinghouse number Two zero zero five zero three one one five one, as amended by, with, as amended as discussed. Uh, yeah, let's. Or do I have to read them? Amended by the three previously okay. stated recitals, um, and that are now currently reflected in this screen. I think that should be enough information for the staff in the clerk's office to to get it in there what she said okay does he need to say it? you want it's programmatic it's all, it's all this all. is we haven't hit property by property yet okay so we have a motion is there a second? second okay we have a motion and a second um and I'll, before we uh, vote i'll just thank uh, uh, uh councilmember kazan for bringing this up i mean these are all points that i that I think we all support, uh, that there are things that reflect uh, our policies and our general plan and, and our, our city's values. Um, there are things that I would hope would happen anyway, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to support, you know, having them included in the record like that. And I want to thank the, um, the community and our speakers for coming forward and speaking. I know uh, this might not be uh, the action that you were hoping, but we have heard you, uh, we understand the concerns, and you know we're in a, a, a bind, as we've heard. Uh, this is a tough situation for the council. For uh, We've tried to avoid this, as, as you've heard. Uh, we've tried to identify only infill projects, and, and, and getting to a point where we had to rezone properties is something that we tried to avoid. Unfortunately, um, here we are today, and the state, uh, you know, we're, we're up against the wall. So. I wish that, that, that this could have gone differently, and I wish we could have avoided this, and, and as I said, we tried to. So, unfortunately, that's where we are. Yeah, Councilmember Kasdan. Yeah, just to, I mean, in a sense, we have to eat a crap Councilmember, is your, is your mic on? Oh. In a sense, we have to eat a crap sandwich, and our process now is to decide which condiments. That's, uh, you know, it's... Sometimes you just don't find yourself in the place you want to be. <coughs> All right. I'll, I'll just say that um, 
clearly we we need more housing. When I, I think back to when we got the survey, the housing survey, when we were starting this process before it came to Planning Commission back in, we received uh, survey comments, I think from over 600 residents of Goleta um, between February and April of uh, last year in 2022, when the Planning Commission was getting ready to decide what path to take with the housing element in terms of a recommendation to council. And we, the, the public comments that we that we got from those over 600 residents, I'd probably classify in in three categories. Uh, one, they're, they're pro-housing, but they didn't want high-density housing. Another group didn't want any more housing. And another group thought that we really did need more housing because we were dealing with issues like homelessness, employers needing to be able to recruit and, and hire people from out of the area to come and take jobs. Um, and I think that the prior two attempts by the council to um, to get to a housing element that the state could accept reflected in many ways the sentiments of the community that we heard at the time, trying to strike that balance. And um, now we find ourselves in a place where we're really having to choose between um, defying the state and losing our local control or making some important compromises in order to be able to retain our local control so that our actual local policies as it relates to traffic, as it relates to uh, building heights, as it relates to densities uh, can, be, can be retained. Uh, because if you, if you don't like a project that's in our site's inventory now, when our densities in zoning allows between 20 and 30 units per acre at its top, imagine a site when your zoning law no longer exists, so you no longer have a minimum maximum density. It's whatever they can propose and get through with CEQA. That's not a place you wanna be in it as a community. And so for me, this is a difficult compromise, um, but we do need more housing and this is where we landed. So I'm, I'm ready for a motion, I'm ready for a roll call vote yes. whenever you're ready. <laughs> yes, I'm, can we have a roll call please? Councilmember Kasdan. Aye. Councilmember Reyes Martinez recused. Councilmember Kiriako. Aye. Mayor Pro Tempo Richards. Yes. And Mayor Prodes recused as well. So three to zero. Okay, three to zero. Eyes uh, have it. Yes. Uh, we'll take a break and then we'll invite uh, Councilmember um, Reyes Martin back as well. Thank you. Five minute break. Hello, I'm bringing this meeting back to order. Um, we are on item D1. Uh, Mr. Kutaya, could you please read that in the record? Uh, yes, that is item D1. Approve one edition of 7264 Kyriel APN 077-130-006 to the housing element 2023-20... Sure. Uh, housing element 2023-2031 subprogram HE 2.1A and the technical appendix residential sites inventory and two related implementation amendments of A, the general plan and B, title 17 zoning of the Glido Municipal Code to facilitate high density residential housing as detailed in subprogram 2.1A at 7264 Kyrial, APN 077-130-006, case numbers 21-0002-GPA and 23-0004-ORD. 
Thank you. All right, uh, Ms. Wells, back to you. Uh, good evening, Mayor Pro Tem Richards and Council and members of the public. Um, and welcome to this public hearing to consider the housing element 2023-2031 um, revisions. I think I already introduced the team, so I, I won't. We still have the consultant team online as well um, to, to support this hearing that's focused in on the Kenwood Village um, specific housing element revisions and then related implementation actions for the land use designation and other general plan amendments and the, the zoning amendments that are for your consideration tonight. So we just jump to the next slide. Um, we're just gonna follow the, the, the usual format um, with the presentations and then questions and then public comment, et cetera. And the topics that we'll cover are um, background, we'll review the summary of the, those Kenwood specific revisions and then um, the recommendations but I, I, um, um, again, this Kenwood item is taken kind of out of turn because of the recusals. And then um, at the very end, we'll have the whole package of the housing element and all of the various amendments together for you. So this is a little different to take this out of turn. And again, you know, if in a different, in a different way, we, could, we would be doing all four of these items, one item. So it, it's carved up a little bit differently because of the recusals, and I just wanted to flag that, that if it feels funny to be talking about one site by itself, um, that's the reason why, is because of the recusals. So let's just jump into the next slide with the housing element background. We covered this in the last item, so you can just see it on the screen, and I think that the main point is the last bullet, which is that we um, received that drafting compliance letter from HCD on October 16th, 2023, and that was um, because of the revisions that are in the package before you, so with the reasons. So that's the, the, the key bullet there, and then let's talk about Kenwood. Um, so the going into that housing element subprogram HE 2.1A, um, that, that, the reason for it is the reason that we're proposing reasons, of course, is because that um, there's changes to our housing sites inventory that led to that regional housing need allocation shortfall, and we will talk about that more in that in that um, third hearing tonight, and explain that more. Um, and then we went through in in July in those three study sessions that I had referred to earlier this evening. Uh, we talked about various sites to rezone, and the Kenwood site came up um, as a recommendation. And so we had those revisions to 2.1a that included um, what exactly that would look like on that Kenwood site, um, which is a single-family residential site and with also um, agriculture and the proposals to change it to high-density residential. And the, uh, the little bit more of the details on that, because this site is a bit unusual um, from uh, the way we're preparing the package of revisions to the housing element and the zoning amendments and general plan amendments. We put a development cap of 190 units, so it's less than what you could theoretically get on the whole parcel. Um, and that's um, with a minimum density of 20 units per acre and 
with a 190 unit cap that that reduces the footprint of that 9.48 acre site to um, 6.33 acres. So that that's not established in the way we wrote the zoning revisions in the packet that's before you this evening. It would just kind of float. Um, that development foot, footprint would um, would float, um, and the range of units that could be within that because it's because high density residential is 20 to 30 units per acre is 126 units to 190 units. So that's the flexibility that the property owner is given as they design their site. Um, I think I covered my key points on that slide. So let's, um, here's the map of the, the Kenwood site. And I think you all know where that that site is in um, north north of the freeway over by Winchester Canyon along uh, Kyrial, and um, oh, I wanted to flag that's what it was that all of the units that would be counted on this site would be counted as lower income units, and um, if you take the maximum that you could get with the rezone 190 units and compare that to what you could get based on the zoning now. Um, it, it's a net new of 162 units. So it's, it's de um, delivering us a lot of that RENA math units to for HCD. Um, and so that's kind of the, the main thing with this with this map. You can see the ag on the Kyrial the side and then the existing single-family residential to the north. And so uh, on the... On, I think I mentioned this, there's the general plan amendments. You have, we have to change the land use element, um, policies and table, or the map, and a policy. And then we ha also have to change a, a open space element figure to remove the agriculture designation as a companion amendment. And then the next slide is, is just summarizing the zoning amendment um, that would accompany with a little bit more detail on um, the cap and the 6.33 acre uh, limitation. And then that just brings us to the staff recommendation. And there's a lot of resolutions and an ordinance. There's two resolutions and an ordinance for, for your consideration this evening. And we're happy to take questions if you have any. Thank you. Uh, to council, uh, I see council member Kiriako. Thank you, Mr. Mayor Pro Tem. Uh, just a, a few questions. Uh, the 190 units, is that a minimum or is that a maximum? Um, thank you, that 190 is a maximum. The minimum that would be al allowed is 126 units. Okay. Um, I guess my next question is, how does it work with um, accessory dwelling units? If the developer, because I know the developer uh, had plans to amend our general plan. He's just waiting on water, which would um, accomplish uh, 60 units. But I know that the state allows accessory dwelling units and junior accessory dwelling units uh, with certain restrictions, essentially, as a by-right process. If, if we wanted to, if the, if the property owner wanted to satisfy the minimum density for the project, for the property after rezoning it, with the accessory dwelling units contributing to that minimum density. Is that something that by the, the, the law of our housing element, if we, ad if we adopt this, 
would that be something that our housing element would allow, or would that not be in compliance with the housing element? I'm, just, I'm trying to get at whether or not essentially he would need to start over with a new project um, completely in terms of a new site plan and everything, as opposed to just adding ADUs to an existing site plan. Maybe this will answer your question. Okay. ADUs aren't counted towards the density. So if if you live in a single-family residential development right now, you could build an ADU. And that wouldn't, you, we couldn't say no to that because of the density in your district. Okay. So because you can't count it towards density, that would not be a path to, I, I guess I'm still trying to get at, is that, a, is that a path for a property owner who just wants to kind of get this over with? Well, he, someone could um, at the site or any of the other sites um, or any other vacant site that has residential zoning in the city or not a vacant site can build um, an accessory dwelling unit. So um, I think if you're saying... If there were yeah, 126 60, units and some of them were ADUs, does that get to be counted as 126 units? Yes. It would be, well, no. It would be, let's say you have 126 units of single-family homes. Okay. And then you could get you a, can a, get more accessory units dwelling units, ADUs. depending on how the site was laid out and depending on what kind of development it was. So we're, you know, I'm kind of picturing, like, if you're, if you have a bunch of single-family homes, you can get a bunch of accessory dwelling units um, for each one. And that wouldn't, um, we wouldn't be able to say no. To, to those ADUs because of uh, density. Okay, so essentially if we, if we go forward and rezone, he really does need to come up with a project that lands somewhere between 126 and 190 units. It doesn't have to be 190, it could be 126, but it needs to be somewhere within that, within that range of actual main dwelling units. Absolutely. Okay, that, that's all, thank you. Thank you. Other questions? No? Okay. All right. Well, I, I guess we'll go to public comment. I think we'll open the public hearing and uh, see if we have any public comments. Uh, yes, and Mr. Mayor Pro Tempore, at this time we do have 10 speaker slips. For those of you on the Zoom webinar, please use the raised hand icon and I will call on you. Our first speaker will be April Reed. Hello. I'm not going to bore you with hopefully the same stuff I've been through before, so I'll try something new. Um, Kenwood Village, um, just so you know, in my opinion, there is an easement on the property. Um, there has been a well-worn path between my rental at 17 Baker Lane uh, that goes back, or that's um, between that and the back of Tuolumne, goes all the way down Tuolumne, and uh, goes behind Baker Lane. Um, there have been uh, people, including myself, for the past 55 years who've used that property um, and those paths on those properties. Uh, Mr. Alker just um, wrote an article where he calls us, quote, trespassers, so clearly it's not consensual, um, and it is an open space. So uh, with that in mind, uh, I would recommend that the 6.63 acres not uh, include those well-worn paths, and I have pictures of those paths 
uh, where people and dogs walk all the time. Um, so the 6.6 .6 acres should be, a, a, you know, farther away from that than I think it is the 20 um, uh, feet that is required and should not be considered in the rezoning. Um, also, uh, as I said before, there was just another traffic accident a couple weeks ago. So it's a very dangerous property. Um, there's a study showing high-risk intersections at Hollister Avenue and Stork, Marketplace Drive and Stork, and the arterial segments at Stork Road. And since we do not have a current uh, firehouse in our area, uh, the fire trucks are going to have to drive by all of those areas in order to get to uh, Kenwood Village and any other place. Uh, so that should also be considered in uh, rezoning. And finally, uh, I did mention this before, there are multiple animals on the property that were not considered in the 2016 EIR that was done. And those include pictures I sent to you. I didn't take them, but I sent to you of monarch butterflies, great egrets whose nests are protected by the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Uh, and according to Gaudubon Society, a uh, white-tailed kite. And those are on the, not the white-tailed kite, but the other animals were found on the Baker Lane side of the property, not on the Creek side of the property. So um, this should be considered for the entire property. I also showed, sent all of you pictures of multiple animals. Some were not included in the wildlife um, summary uh, that are on the Baker Lane side of the property. So the habitat should be considered. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Richard Foster. Maybe everybody in Ellen County Heights can build an ADU in the backyard and we'll just be done with this. Um, you know, part of the problem is the city's never built an RH development anywhere in town. I mean, it's all medium density. I checked this beforehand, and so we don't have much experience with this, which has people wondering because they look at Price's project over there, and it looks pretty big and massive, and it's the same size, and it's 176 units. So that's where a lot of the anxiety comes from. I do find it somewhat ironic that it's taken two and three quarters years for our city staff and a consultant to come up with a housing element that gets approved by a guy who was working at the Gap seven years ago. It's pretty amazing. It took that much trouble to get Lanza's approval on this thing. It says that this rezone is in the best interest of the community. I'm not sure which community we're referring to. All one has to do is look at the numerous comments from people who live that way about whether they think it's in the best interest of their community. Uh, it's certainly in the best interest of landowners and Newsom's whole housing plan seems to be a plan to enrich landowners. Kenwood is overburdened. It would be far better if he just wanted to build his 60 units. He count that towards housing. And in that yard, he's talking about going up to 390. He can start moving it over there. And out of those 60 units, he can make 20% of them affordable. And the rest can house his employees. And we'll avoid a lot of the traffic things. And probably the whole thing will get built a lot sooner than with everybody coming down to complain and bitch about traffic impacts and this impact and safety impact. Um, it, it seems ironic that we're going to rezone ag land, no matter how small it is. But they were farming it. There was two acres of water usage in the late 90s on it. But I guess, you know, if it's small enough, then we can just slide it on by. If it's down to 6.3 acres, leave it ag on the bottom, let them build on the 6.3 on the top side of it. Um, it'd be a nice compromise. You keep your egg space. 
Um, you know, one advantage that the county seems to have done is they picked a lot more sites than they needed, and we've seemed to gone for putting as many houses in as few sites as possible. And you know, perhaps I don't understand the process, but we don't seem to have much slippage room if developers come along and say, you know what, I can't make this pencil out. What happens in two years if you don't provide your housing? Um, we could have gone down as small as a half acre site and still been high density under the rules. Instead, we've gone for some mega projects with 200 or 300 units all clumped together in a very few spaces. Kind of a bad planning problem. I think it's too much for Kenwood. And of course, that's nothing new. We've all heard it. We're going to repeat ourselves again and again. Um, but thank you for your time. Thank you. The next speaker is Travis Tucker. And a reminder for those on the Zoom webinar, which to speak to this item, please use the raised hand icon and I will call on you. The housing crisis and the state mandates should not have blindsided any of us because I've been aware of places like Penwood Village for over 15 years. Uh, everyone says we need high density housing or we need more housing, we need affordable housing. It's a problem, but when it comes to our neighborhood, we don't want it where we live. And it doesn't matter if it's for single family homes or high density, people oppose every single project that comes before the council, whether it's at Santa Barbara City, Goleta, at the county level. And development just doesn't happen. And now we're in a position where we're up against a wall with state mandates of housing because of inaction granted not by you folks, but your predecessors, didn't take action to approve things. There was opposition to Kenwood Village when it was a single family proposal with uh, three houses per acre. And there's still opposition today. There's gonna be opposition to every plan in front of the council. But the amount of time it takes for development to happen, action just needs to happen. Housing needs to be built. Tree Farm had the same reservations, water, traffic, everything else. That was approved 17 years ago. And it just finally got built in the last few years. So this search for a mythical land that isn't going to have environmental traffic or water impacts is not going to exist. It's all going to consume a little water. It's going to add a little traffic. But we're losing colleagues, employees. Teachers can't work. Nurses or teachers can't live where they work. Nurses can't. People that earn low six-figure incomes in a dual-income family can't afford even a modest home in this town anymore, and we're losing everybody. And it needs to change, and this council needs to realize that there's going to be opposition to everything. And no one is going to unanimously say, yes, we should build this. And that's not going to change, but the development still needs to happen. Thank you. Our next speaker is Ken Alker. Mayor Procha, I'm Richards and City Council. <clears throat> As you well know, I'm Ken Alker, the owner of Kenwood Village. Um, please recall that staff's original recommendation was to rezone Kenwood Village to RH, resulting in 190 <clears throat> to 284 yeah. units. City Council and Planning Commission unanimously supported the RH zoning per the original straw vote. In the next workshop, a cap of 190 units was proposed for the project. 
In order to facilitate that cap, staff is now presenting to you a document that restricts the developable area to 6.33 acres, which is only 63% of the total site acreage. I am certain that you were not intending or aware that this could be a possible consequence for adding a cap. I am concerned that reducing the buildable area to such an extreme will result in a project that is taller instead of wider. My goal is to make the project compatible with the surrounding neighborhood by keeping height as low as possible and creating a reduced building area is counter to that goal. Commissioner Maynard abstained from voting on November 20, or 15th to signal to uh, City Council her reservations, but also to defer to the City Council to determine if the 190 cap and reduced building area that staff has presented to you was the outcome that you had intended. So I ask that you deliberate around this issue and determine if this is truly what you wanted. My hope is that the buildable area can be increased, whether that is by coming up with some other way to deal with the cap or removing the cap, which would be the easiest approach and is my preference since it is the only way I can accommodate the Friendship Manor project that I've already talked about in the past. Another way to solve this is to increase the cap a bit in order to increase the buildable area since one is driving the other. It would be really nice to get a buildable area that's closer to seven and a half or eight acres, recalling that the total property, including both parcels, is at least 10 acres. I know there's an urgency to get this document to the HCD, and I understand that a material change could trigger a new review with HCD. However, I ask, do you know that increasing the cap a little or changing the buildable area or even removing the cap would be considered a material change with HCD. If not, then I would implore you to, to discuss this and perhaps make a single simple change to the document tonight before voting. If you think this would be a material change, then I'll do what I can to get the units onto 6.33 acres of buildable area, but the massing just won't be a project that is as nice as a project that could be spread across a full 10 acres, whether 190 units, 284, or something in between. I genuinely appreciate the opportunity to finally get the project done and all the effort that has gone into this. Thank you very much, and I'll be available for questions. Thank you. Our next speaker is Sam Cheslick. Mayor and Council, thanks for this opportunity to be here. Um, I'm a 23-year uh, Goleta employee uh, at Curvature, originally Network Hardware Resale. Um, and uh, I've seen firsthand the real impacts of our lack of housing. And, uh, you know, uh, we're seeing it right now. There's someone on my team right now who we are losing who's a quality uh, employee who is leaving the area and uh, we're losing them as an employee and as a member of the community it's it's very real it's impacting you know our team our company and our community and and this is just you know one one small uh, you know glimpse into this you know real requirement for housing um, speaker uh, two before me I think said it best that you're, you're not going to find uh, a, a project here without opposition and I appreciate that you're you know, here looking for consensus and, and that you want to do right by your community. Um, but we find ourselves in this position because, uh, uh, you know, there, there, there is housing needed. And I think uh, um, 
Council Member Curacao, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, um, uh, you know, you said it best that we're in a position of if we do not approve these units, then builders are going to be able to circumvent and, and you're going to lose the ability to control and influence these projects. So when I look at the available properties, um, to me, Kenwood is uh, the, the most ripe for uh, dense housing. It's surrounded on all sides uh, by relatively dense housing um, with the freeway on the other side. Um, uh, to me, it's a, it's a logical property to help us meet the numbers that are, that are needed by the community. So, um, you know, to, to me, uh, you know, this project should be, um, uh, should be, you know, strongly considered for, I, you know, I think uh, density beyond uh, the 190. And I think um, what Mr. Alker just mentioned, you know, this notion of limiting, you know, taking the maximum and, and then doing the math that backs into the envelope of the 6.3 acres, um, uh, I think you have to be very careful there. I don't, I, I can understand the notion of having the cap um, where you want it to be, but I would think that you would want the buildable envelope to be, you know, nearly as wide as possible to minimize the, the height requirement. So uh, I'm, I'm here to voice my support for, you know, taking action for approving housing, for taking the bold measures that are needed um, so that you're able to retain some control and, and to really consider the notion of uh, expanding that envelope uh, as well. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker is Taj Cheslak. Ladies and gentlemen of the City Council, thank you for the opportunities to speak today. As a lifelong resident of this community, I've witnessed the growth and changes that have shaped our town. Today, I stand before you to voice my support for the housing permits in question at the Kenwood property. This specific location makes sense as there's already dense housing on three sides and a freeway on the other. Our community is more than just a collection of houses. It's a vibrant tapestry of memories, friendships, and shared experiences. As a young member of this town, I understand the importance of creating spaces where future generations can build their own roots. While change can be daunting, responsible development ensures that our community thrives, providing opportunities for families to call this place home. Housing permits are not just about structures, they represent the promises of a diverse, sustainable, and inclusive community. By embracing growth, we invest in the future of our town, fostering a sense of belonging for everyone. I urge you to consider the positive impact that thoughtful housing development can have on the fabric of our community. Let's build not just houses, but homes where dreams are nurtured and futures are forged. Thank you. Thank you. The next speaker is Kingston Cheslock. Hello, I'm only nine years old and I invest my money because I wanna live here when I'm older. And there's not a lot of housing and it, the, if there is housing, it's really expensive. And I think if Kenwood was made, then there would be cheap houses or cheaper houses and more of them so we could live here when we're older. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is Zoila Portillo. 
Good evening, everyone. That's a tough one to follow. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Um, so I've been a resident of Goleta for almost two decades, and housing has always been a challenge. Um, I call Goleta home, and it would be um, um, a huge impact, and uh, not just for me, my friends, and um, a lot of people that I've met who can't afford a house. It's, um, so Ken, Kenwood Village, it's an opportunity, not a problem. Like a lot of people see it as a problem. But I think that it's mostly that we're afraid of change. Like I remember going to school and seeing all the land by UCSB and um, all the changes and stuff. Everyone was afraid of that. Not very many people approved of it or like came a uh, target. You know, it took years for a lot of those things to get approved. And it has been of a great benefit to the community. So I would um, recommend that you know you consider approving Kenwood Village. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker is Alma Hernandez. Good evening. I moved to Goleta about seven years ago. I was born and raised in Santa Barbara, and when I started coming to school to UCSB 10 years ago, you know, I had to look. But also after that, when I was employed, it was easier to move into Goleta and not have to commute as much. Now that I've been here for quite a few years, it's kind of difficult to see friends co-workers having to move out because they can't find adequate housing or affordable. So I'm here to voice my support for Canwood Village. Um, I think it's a great opportunity to be able to provide low-income housing and uh, units that would be beneficial for others. So thank you. Thank you. Next speaker is Michelle Owen. Karen Lovelace. So again, we have people coming forward saying, let's do Kenwood Village. We need housing. We need affordable housing. We need low-income housing. There's absolutely no guarantee that Mr. Alker is going to build low-income housing. Even the best possibility and it was discussed about um, the inclusionary housing, 20%. So every, for every four houses that are built, only one of them is affordable. And it doesn't even mean that it's going to be low-income affordable. So all the folks that come forward and say, we need housing, like, I don't know where Mr. Tucker has been. I don't know if he's been in Elencano Heights, but um, our neighborhood has not been, we're not going to, we're not going to approve, we're not going to be in favor of any housing. In fact, you know, Mr. Alker knows right now, he has not, there's not been great objection to his 60 units. There wasn't great objection to the Crown Collection. There wasn't great objection to the Mountain View uh, project. So that is complete, that's a complete lie. We are not anti-housing. We want the best for our neighborhood. We, we know the area. We know what it can accommodate. We know it's safe. We know it's good for our community. And yeah, we could build housing, 
but the affordable housing program itself in the state of California and locally is a big scam. We're getting for all of this housing, how much of it is affordable. So everybody who is in favor of housing, do not for one second assume that you are going to be able to afford to either rent it or buy it. It's all a scam. Thank you. Our next speaker is Amy Dietz, and this is a last call for you uh, Zoom speakers who wish to speak to this item. Please use the raised hand, hand icon and I will call on you. Hi, I just wanted to bring something to your attention. I think it was um, probably spoken by somebody who doesn't actually live in the area and um, know the neighborhood, but Kenwood Village has high density, not even high density, um, higher density housing on one side of it. The other two sides of it have single family homes. They, it's not high density. So um, I would hesitate to understand how putting all of that high density housing in there wouldn't be impactful to the single family homes on the two sides. It would be. Um, also, I understand what young people are saying about the affordability. I have a young adult child living at home. She, she, it's not cool to live at home. Um, she has a full-time job, she is well-educated, but it's the only way that she can live in the area. I understand that, and I appreciate that. I don't want her living with me forever, but I know it's gonna take a long time to save the money to, to, to be able to move out. I appreciate the struggles that you are considering. If I had to buy my home again, I couldn't afford it. So it, housing is expensive, it is, it's an issue. I get that. Our greatest concern is how can we build housing that people can actually afford and how can we do it without um, wrecking or negatively impacting what makes this place so special. I was born in Goleta. I live in Goleta. I am a teacher in Goleta. I love this town and I hate seeing that this little slice of paradise that's wedged in between the ocean and the mountains, a lot of our issues is because we just don't have enough land to build for all the people that want to live here. We can't do anything about that, but I would just hate to see that we are destroying some of what makes our community so special in the name of affordable housing that, you know, a few units here and there, yeah, that's great for the few people that are gonna to get to live there, but in the long run, it's going to negatively impact our special community more than it is going to provide homes for people that need an affordable place to live. Thank you for your time and your consideration. Thank you. And that concludes uh, public comment. Okay, and nothing online? Uh, no, I had no hands raised. No hands raised. For the Zoom webinar. Okay, thank you. Uh, back to council. Uh, council member Kiriakou. Uh, thank you, Mr. Mayor Pro Tem. You know, I think the last 15, 20 minutes of public comment just says so much about where we are as a city and as a state when it comes to housing. I mean, it, it's all there. Um, there's distrust, there is um, advocacy for more, there's advocacy for less. Um, a disagreement about the basic facts, like what's the neighbor, the composition of a particular neighborhood, 
everyone kind of just having their own set of facts. So just a, a few reactions that I have here to, to the public comment. The, the first is it was kind of stated earlier that um, Glita hasn't grown and Glita's against growth. And my reaction to that, and I'm sorry if this sounds glib, is Glita's not against growth. Glita's against dumb growth. And, <laughs> and Glita has grown. If you actually look at, at real data, and I happen to have it from the United States Census, the city of Goleta between 2010 and, 2010 and 2020 added over 1,100 units of housing. That was three times the amount of housing built in the same period of time in the city of Santa Barbara. It was four and a half times the amount of housing built in the city of Carpentria. I'm, I'm sorry, but the reports on the, on the website for Santa Barbara County Association of Governments, November 2021 preliminary census report. This is just data. Glita has grown. Um, to the comment that was made about housing doesn't happen in Glita because neighbors just rise up in opposition and they just oppose everything, we, oppo we approved 332 units of housing at Heritage Ridge in March. This place was quiet as a church mess. It was quiet. There were not a bunch of people rant ranting and raving about hell no growth in Glita. It was pretty quiet. Most of the public comment was in support. It was a unanimous vote. Um, there's other examples too. Um, Galita has actually, even before we get the final sign-off on the housing element for the city of Galita for the sixth cycle between 2023 and 2031, we've already approved plans for 21% of it. One out of every five housing units that we need to accomplish out of the 1,837 are already in the works. Just between a couple of single-family homes that have already been permitted, Buena Tierra, and Heritage Ridge. We're already a, like a fifth of, the, we're already over 21% of the way there. So I think we have been accomplishing our housing goals. We've had, a, we've had a little bit of trouble getting to the lower income, but you can't say we haven't been growing. When I, got, when I took office in late 2018, early 2019, there were three housing projects being built in my district all at the same time. Villages of Los Carneros was, being fi was under final completion. Um, Old Town Village was still being completed, and um, Cortona Point Apartments hadn't had broken ground, but no units had been erected. There, that's I mean, I mean, let me see, 175 units, 175 units, and uh, 400 and something units for um, for the villages of Los Carneros. That was basically our entire fifth circuit, fifth cycle housing element right there. So we've, we've, we've been growing, we've been providing housing. The problem is that the city of Goleta has essentially been the workforce housing provider for the entire South Coast. Other places haven't been doing their part. And I'm gonna actually acknowledge the work of Mayor Prodi. She's not in the room to hear it right now, but Mayor Prodi advocated for us at SBCAG when they were dividing up the over 24,000 housing units that Santa Barbara County needed to accommodate in the next eight years. And we could have ended up with 8,001 like the city of Santa Barbara. We could have ended up with over 2,000 like Lompoc got. We got 1,837. And while that's a lot, and while it's more than we got in the previous cycle, it's, it's so much less than it could have been. Think about if we had to accommodate 8,000 units of housing in the city of Goleta. Can you imagine the conversation that would be happening in, this, in these chambers? It'd be a very different conversation. So I know there are people that don't feel like their mayor 
who lives in the third district, by the way, has been representing them. But this process could have been so much worse if it wasn't for the work that she did and our professional planning staff did working with SBCAG. So I'm just going to say that right now as well. This is a really challenging role. And I appreciate that the, the property owner for Kenwood wants to have more options, wants to have better options, wants to have more flexibility. We could have done the split zoning. You would have got to the same result, I think, but it ended up being a development cap. That's just how it landed. At the end of the day, you're getting three up, um, your upper range, even before you get into state density bonus law, if you want to pursue that approach, um, if, if you really do want to add more affordable housing on the property, that is a, an approach you can take. But as of right now, you have a general plan amendment to come to the city of Goleta for 60 units. 191 or whatever the number is, is three times that. The 126 is more than double that. So you've got a range of two times what you originally wanted or versus three times what you wanted. Some people would say, quit while you're ahead. I'm not gonna tell you what to do. You are a private property owner. You have private property rights. But I would just say, you have a community that is trying to solve a problem you are willing to help us solve the problem, and we appreciate it, and we're glad that you're part of this housing element process. Um, I just want to make sure you, you recognize that there's a lot of give and take to this process, and there's been a lot of give and there's been a lot of take. We're all doing the best that we can with the information we have in the place that we are. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry that you have um, supporters that may feel a little bit disappointed that you're, you're not being put in the housing element potentially for the number of units that we originally talked about in a straw vote. But what happened was we listened to the community, and the community didn't want that much. They thought it was too much. They made some arguments. Some of those arguments resonated with council members. Uh, that happened not just with your parcel, by the way. It happened with one or two others. So this is just the public process. We, we come together, we learn, we listen, and then at the end of the day, we lead. That's what this job's about. And sometimes that means not everyone gets everything they want. And sometimes it means that literally everyone in the room is mad at you for a different reason. But sometimes that's leadership. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Kasdan. Yeah, I just, uh, as far as the last cycle goes, uh, the, to suggest it was all in uh, the Old Town area, uh, we have Hollister Village, we have the Hideaway, we have the Mariposa Senior Living, there's the Hilton Garden. Uh, it, that area along Hollister was dramatically changed from essentially where people had bumper stickers that said, let's keep Goleta country to um, completely eliminating that kind of quality. So to, you know, I just want to, I know that you weren't emphasizing, but I think it, that, and that zone contributed quite a lot in the past cycle and in the current cycle of the housing that's proposed for rezones, up close to 500 is along Hollister on the west side uh, between the various proposed things. So it's not like that area is being somehow neglected with housing. All right, um, a couple of things. Uh, first, some of the things that were raised by um, some of the speakers let's say, about the environment and the, and the uh, wildlife habitat, uh, as well as the location of um, where, the, where the buildable area would be sited and so forth. Um, 
all of that is going to be dealt with in the context of the project level type stuff. Uh, that in this context right now, we don't look at and we're not talking about the um, where, you know, where the preservation of this kind of habitat or that kind of habitat. There'll be streams that will be protected, the stream sides, there'll be setbacks, all of that will be dealt with, but in the context of the project analysis when it comes up, there'll be a CEQA, that is the environmental review, and they'll pick up that, that sort of thing. There's a stream there, so that has to be protected also. Um, and uh, I guess two other things, actually. Just one is as far as did, did were we sitting on this or whether, whether the city was obstructing the ability for this project to go forward. I just want to be clear uh, that the project didn't have water. It wasn't that we were uh, you know, doing anything to stop the project from proceeding. If the Goleta Water District had provided, had said there's available water, it would have gone forward in, you know, 10 years ago. So it, it's not, you know, the environment conspired against the project from being able to go forward, not the city's obstructionist ways. And as Councilmember Kiriako, did I get that right? Uh, kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, said we have the the amount of housing that this city has produced in the previous cycle is significant, and it's not like this has been something that has been um, fought and undermined and so forth. There's a di there's a narrative that you get from the state that the reason that we have a housing crisis and so forth is that cities are the cause. The cities are the fault. It's all based on city obstructionists. And it's, you know, there are obviously there are cases where, yes, there is opposition and there's an impact, but it sure isn't the case here. Uh, and um, I, guess, I, I guess the one last thing, the buildable area, if you would want to comment on that a little, uh, you know, it is a different understanding than I thought we were pursuing, how we were going to deal with it when we initially dealt with that cap sort of thing. So if you can... Explain that. Sure. So for the developable area that is referred to in this um, zoning amendment is the area that's occupied by structures, sidewalks, pavements, and um, other impervious surfaces. That It's not stated as such in the um, ordinance that is before you tonight, but it's in Title 17 um, in the definition for site coverage. And uh, so that's what we're looking at. So outside of that could be a detention basin or um, walkways and um, walk, walking paths. Or if there's um, a protected area like an Esha with a creek with a like a like a meandering path that's contributing to their you know open space requirements, um, things like that. So I hope that that helps answer your question. Okay, well, actually, so in some ways, the concerns of the uh, landowner, it isn't addressed in the context of this ordinance and this, this um, action we're taking today. It's something that, uh, as we go forward, we'll have to manage in the project. Yes. Okay, thank you. Is that all? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, Councilmember Reyes-Martin. Yeah, just to add a, a couple of my comments. Um, I, you know, 
fully recognize through this whole process that these have been really tough conversations and tough choices. I've really appreciated the voluminous public input we've had via email in these council chambers across all the different meetings. Um, you know, I think we have really professional planning staff who has been working very diligently on this under imperfect circumstances working with HCD. This whole housing element process throughout the state has been less than ideal, less than perfect for every community trying to accommodate, accommodate a one-size-fits-all um, approach that we're faced with with the state. Um, you know, folks in the room may not no, I actually started my professional career as a land use planner. So local control and all of these issues that we've talked about are, are very deeply important to me. I very much recognize how important retaining as much local control as possible uh, when we are evaluating actual projects, um, how important that is to a process. I think the, pro the Heritage Ridge project that was referenced um, is an example of how through that process locally with lots of input from different groups, from residents, from staff, from council, we arrived at a project that met a lot of different needs um, and addressed a lot of issues from creek setbacks to environment, um, a lot of different things. Um, I want to, through this process, get us across this finish line with a certified housing element so that we can con retain as much of that local control as possible. Um, you know, I am also um, an immigrant who pursued the American dream of home ownership. Um, so I live in a single family home um, and I am very sensitive to the concerns that we've heard from residents in single family home uh, communities um, over an unknown, um, an unknown of a project, an unknown of what kinds of impacts they may be dealing with. Um, I completely understand that. Um, I, you know, I, I think that it's important to hear those perspectives. And I think that goes back again to we need to retain as much local control so that when we are actually looking at a project, we can address height and view sheds and traffic to the extent possible um, through a public process, through everyone's continued um, you know, public input and participation. Um, I, I do support having a cap um, on, on this property um, because, you know, we, we do need to look at what all the various impacts are going to be. Um, and I think that I appreciate all the input that we've had from the public that got us to that. I think that, for me, that is a good compromise and a way of consensus on that. Um, and I think some other comments have also noted that, you know, we don't currently have a lot of places throughout the city that have high-density residential. I pointed that out early on in this process when you look at our, our zoning map. Um, so this is um, new territory in some ways for parts of our, our city, and so I think then it is incumbent on us as city council members, my, myself, I will take it very seriously to really work through um, the potential impacts, um, knowing that we have, we, we've, we've got to get to a certified housing element so that we can we can have those discussions. Um, so that's where I am with this. And again, just reiterating my appreciation for all the comments that we've had throughout this long process. Um, I know that there's disagreement and varying viewpoints, but it's an important part of this public process. Thank you. Um, and 
I just I wanted to ask uh, just a, a clarifying question with regard to that uh, that 6.33 acres. That's the developable portion of the of the 9.48 acres. Now, is that up to the discretion of the of the owner of the developer of where that which 6.33 acres that is, or through the planning process that will be vetted out? So there's no map or anything that now shows where that developable land will be, it, it'll be up to the discretion of that, or it'll be through the planning process. Is that correct? That's correct. It will be established at the time that they um, submit their application, and, and they'll probably do surveys, and they'll find the right location to avoid um, the resources that would otherwise constrain further the 6.33 acres. So that, yes, it would that would happen at the time okay. of an application submittal. Okay, thank you. You know, one of the comments that was made, and I'm looking at the map where it shows that the current zoning um, of the ag is on the southern portion of the property that is along Cai Real, and then the northern portion was the RS that was uh, in, in the neighborhood. And I think the suggestion was uh, made at one point that, well, could we preserve the ag portion and then um, just make the RS portion into the high density. And I think the concern that came up, I remember during our discussions uh, with the Planning Commission, was that then that would force all of the development to be on the northern part, you know, in the neighbor, you know, closer to the homes uh, on Tuolumne and in the surrounding areas. And, and I, I think that would, you know, I think that the concern is that that ne might not necessarily be the best in terms of the planning uh, for that area, you know, where some people may prefer that the plan that the high density be further away from the existing residential. So I just want to make that note. All right, um, I don't think that we have any more questions, and I think that we had a. Um, I'm going to close the public hearing unless we have any other comments. So we'll close the public hearing, bring it back to the council, and. If there's any more deliberation or if there's a motion, I'm ready to enter, entertain that. <laughs> All right. You want to take a stab at it? Yeah, nobody wants to make the motion. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're oh, making it. they're yeah, making it easy for you. <laughs> we have it here posted. All right, um, I'll move that we adopt resolution number twenty three next in line, entitled "A Resolution of the City Council of the City of Goleta, California." adding 7264 Calle Real, APN 077-130-006, to housing element 2023 through 2031, subprogram HE 2.1A, and the technical appendix residential sites inventory, case number 21-0002-GPA, and B, adopt resolution number 23, Next in line, entitled, A Resolution of the City Council of the City of Goleta, California, adopting amendments to the general plan to facilitate high-density residential development at 7264 Cai Real, APN 077-130-006, 
case number 21-0002-GPA. C, introduce and conduct first reading by title only and waive further reading of ordinance number 23 next in line entitled an ordinance of the city council of the city of Goleta, California, amending title 17 zoning of the Goleta Municipal Code to change the zone district and standards for 7264 Chi Real, APN 077-130-006, case number 23-0004-ORD. And D, make a determination that because a sequel addendum was considered as part of a separate action, no further environmental review is required for resolution number 23, next in line, um, resolution 23 next in line and ordinance number 23 next in line pursuant to public resources code section 21166 and state CEQA guidelines section 15162. Did I get that right, Madam Attorney? Yes, sir. Okay, do we have a second? I'll second. Okay. Uh, roll call vote, please. Councilmember Kasdan. Aye. Councilmember Reyes Martin. Aye. Councilmember Kiriako. Aye. Mayor Pro Tempore Richards. Yes. And Mayor Rapodi is recused. Okay. Ayes have it. Thank you. All right. Uh, and that brings us to the next item. I'll go um, and actually get Mayor Prodi and we'll, uh, she can. I'll read my recusal. Oh, oh yeah. We um, have another recusal. I have a potential conflict of interest under the Political Reform Act relating to the site at 625 Dara Road um, due to its proximity to my home. Therefore, I will recuse myself from any actions related to this site, including this current item, D2. My notes. And I will go ahead and uh, read the item into the record. It is item D2, approve one addition of 625 Dara Road, APN 069-37. so weird to be gone for so long. Dash 064 to the housing element 2023-2031 subprogram HE 2.1A and the technical appendix residential sites inventory and two related implementation amendments of A, the general plan and B, title 17 zoning of the Galito Municipal Code to facilitate medium density residential housing as detailed in subprogram sub 2.1A at 625 Dara Road, case number 21-0002-GPA and 23-0004-ORD. Thank you. Okay, Ms. Wells, can you start us up? Oh, well, we, we're missing Mayor oh. Bertem. He went to get you. Oh, I'm here. <laughs> Here's back. Oh, there he is. Okay, I think we're here now. Okay, Ms. Wells, would you All right, like to well, make your presentation? Good evening, Mayor. Welcome back. Thank you. And, um, Felt odd to be sequestered. <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome to this public hearing to consider housing element revisions, specifically um, like the last item to 625 Dara Road This in this case. And I'm going to just jump right into the presentation. 
Um, the public hearing agenda is the is the typical format, the same that we followed the last one with a presentation and then questions and public comment, close the public hearing, et cetera. Um, the next slide, the topics will um, just cover some background and then we'll summarize the revisions that will set you up for the recommendations. And then regarding the um, housing element background, uh, we've, you know, I think this stuff should be pretty familiar. We've talked about it in, other, in um, I think, all of the housing element related items, but I will just flag that, that the reason that we're here with these reasons in particular is that last bullet, which is that on October 16th, we received that draft and compliance letter from the state um, for our housing element revisions that included the Dara Road reason. So it's a important um, from a seeking certification uh, perspective. And then if we go right to exactly what it is that we're talking about, it's revisions to housing element subprogram HE2.1A. And that, um, um, again, like what, what the reason that we're doing it is because the state identified a shortfall in our housing element for um, re the regional housing need allocation. Um, thus, we had the study sessions in July, and uh, DARA was on the list of rezone sites. So we rewrote um, subprogram 2.1A that would include this site um, as a rezone from it's currently single-family residential, and then what is proposed to be is medium-density residential. And I'll just note that um, from a math accounting perspective for the state, the, these units don't count towards um, lower income um, because the minimum density is not great enough. That said, we have a surplus in our inventory, so it, it, it still works for us. So looking at the site, um, it's a 4.23-acre site. It's located north of the freeway, um, kind of in the vicinity of Fairview. And the rezone supports an additional 72 units of basically moderate income units, and that's so it's um, 84 total units with the rezone, and then if you take out the 12 that would be allowed on the um, with the current zoning, that's why I said it's a net difference of 72 units. And so to uh, make that happen, we first have to amend our general <laughs> plan, um, and that's just amending the map so that it has a different color on that site, showing um, high-density residential. And then the same thing for the zoning map. It's the, the same change. I'm just making sure I didn't miss anything. It was that easy. Or well, it's not easy. So sorry. The explanation is easy. The, the, you know, the significance is, is not. And so that uh, will leave us with the recommendation you have two resolutions and an ordinance um, to consider to kind of effectuate the, the changes that I just listed out. We're happy to take questions. Thank you. Okay, back to council for questions. Representative Townsend. So the, we had previously initiated a general plan amendment on this site. Uh, I forgot what year, 2019 maybe, or something like that. It was right before the housing stuff came out. What was that initiation at what density was that? And um, I guess how does, that, uh, how does this affect 
that action. Yeah, that, that information is not fresh in my mind, but I think that Andy has a better memory on that site than I do. Councilmember Kasdan, um, it was initiated to RM. So this essentially finishes that, would finish that initiation so that that pending initiation would essentially be mooted by the action of the council should that action be taken. So, uh, so the comparison to what we, the action that we took is status, the same density as what we previously acted upon. Councilmember, because what you pre previously initiated, yeah. which is not the final step, of course. But and yes. that's why it didn't count before and sort of counts now. That's correct. Okay. All right, that's, that's, thank you. Any other questions? No? I have a question um, before, and then I'll open up the public hearing. Um, have we been in communication with um, uh, the water district and how, what, what's happening with the water situation um, for all these projects? Mayor, that's such a good question. We've been going to all the water district um, meetings, their committee meetings, and then the board meetings, and the and they are considering the safe ordinance that has been the equivalent of a moratorium uh, for the past like ten years or so. And um, I think at their next, and each we don't know yet which exact meeting, but any one of these meetings they will um, announce. Um, the, the the discussion of the safe ordinance and lifting that that those are based on lifting the safe ordinances based on um, factual findings and that it sounds like they can meet because they did have a planning meeting that we attended that they um, explained how they could meet the safe findings there was no um, there was no decision made at the committee meeting but um, it was just a discussion about the factual findings and um, and so, yes, we've, we've been in discussion with the water district on um, how that will unfold. And um, we don't have all the questions answered. I think they're still working through some of those things. Okay. And then my next question is on, um, can uh, DARA um, location, can, can they also have ADUs if they wanted to? And would that, how would that count towards the numbers? How would that work? So my understanding is that the um, uh, Dara would, if they they came in with you know single family or, or residential development on that side at medium density, that then just like you, any one of us could now, if we owned a house, um, build an accessory dwelling unit. Okay, I see where. I'm, okay, all right, understand. Okay, so. Um, I'm not seeing any questions, but I'll, I'll open up the public hearing at this point. And if we have any speakers. Yes, if any with, anyone within the Zoom webinar wishes to speak to this item, please use your raised hand icon and I will call on you. I do have two speaker slips. Our first speaker is Karen Lovelace. Dara, lucky Dara. I am not suggesting that I want to see high-density housing at DARA. On the contrary. But I don't understand why DARA is so different than Kenwood. That's the part none of us understand. 
So if it's not inevitable that the parcels that are rezoned to high density are necessarily going to be really overbuilt, then why wasn't DARA included in the high density? Why not? I mean, the discrepancy there is, um, it's rather startling to, to most of us. But again, I'm going to say, it doesn't mean I think it's a good idea. I'm actually very familiar with that parcel. Um, the man has been trying to build there for, for decades, um, you know, in fits and starts. And uh, very similar, there's a lot, uh, it doesn't have a creek, but, you know, again, it's, it's elevated. You know, there's going to be an impact there. And, you know, I really, I hope that it doesn't get overbuilt. Um, but my main, my main purpose is to, is to question why it was treated so differently by the council, why the council thinks that the DARA property is deserving of a lower density designation than the Kenwood site or any of the other sites that were, it's, it's a standalone, it's a standout. <laughs> And it's, um, it's very obvious to everybody that it's the one parcel that um, is not going to be impacted like the rest of them. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Richard Foster. And just a reminder for those of you on the Zoom webinar app, if you wish to speak to this item, please use the raised hand icon. Yeah, very briefly, I agree with the previous speaker. I mean, you know, you're talking about DARA was zoned originally was going to go up to RM. But you're looking at Kenwood going from RS to RH. You know, so it's significantly more impact, which is, I think, why you're seeing a lot of pushback, particularly from the Kenwood community. And probably one of the more unfortunate comments when you guys were on your workshop last summer was when the Dara neighborhood was described as privileged. And that's in there if you want to go back and look at the video quotes. And when you sit there and describe one neighborhood as privileged, and then you go zone it at RM, and you take another neighborhood, which is just us poor working class slobs, and make it RH, you're going to get people thinking that somehow the fix is in and things were not fair. And I think you know that explains some degree of the pushback you're getting, which, and once again, I want to repeat what she said. It's not that I'm saying you should turn around and punish Dara, that RM's probably even too much for there. You know, it's whatever. But that's why people are pissed off harshly. Thank you. And that concludes public comment. Back to council for any more questions. No, no questions? Okay. All right. Um, then I will um, close the public hearing if we have and go into deliberations and comments. Yes. Okay. Councilman McCarry. There we go. Okay. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, you know, I, I want to do the best I can to kind of be responsive to the, some of the comments that we just heard. So I, I do think that there are differences, and I think there is a distinction with a difference um, for me. And this is just, this is my opinion. This doesn't mean I'm right, and it doesn't mean that everyone agrees with me, but this is my rationale. One parcel is very close to the freeway, is very, you know, is right across, on the other side of the freeway, lots of services, lots of things. It's, it's close to things. Another difference is it has higher density housing, it has, I think, medium density, immediately adjacent to it on one side. 
and a busy road on one side. It has single family on two sides. Dar Road is at the intersection of Dar Road and Stoke Canyon Road. These are quieter, sleepier streets. So for me, in terms of how I got there, this is just how I got there, and I'm not expecting agreement. If you have to make a decision about where you would put increased densities versus less of an increase in density, do you want more density on a busy, in a busier, more, more of a traffic route closer to services, or do you want it more in a more remote, further away from services kind of place? I personally prefer higher densities, more, the closer you get to the city core and the closer you get to the freeway, and I'm against higher densities, the more you get into truly single-family, quieter neighborhoods. That's my, that's my theory. That's how I get there. Um, and I can understand why people would disagree with that. Um, and I'm, I'm aware of the other arguments on the other side. That's how I get there. Um, you know, the only other thing I'll say, and I'll just say this as a general comment, is at the end of the end of the day, this exercise is about getting to 1,837 units in the next eight years, uh, not just planned, but ultimately doing the best we can to get them developed. And I'll just stop there. And I appreciate everyone's comments. And I'm I'm sorry I'm not making people terribly happy. There you go. Mayor Pro Tem, did you? Uh, well, yeah, I, I, I can add to that because, you know, I mean, this is an imperfect process and, you know, I, I, I understand that there is a question and confusion about how we landed on certain things. And this was a result of a discussion, you know, that started uh, with our planning commission here, you know, all 10 of us. And I know one of the concerns that, you know, that was an issue for me was public transportation and access and availability of public transportation. And that was one of the things that came up about a lack of a, a, an existing line or one that had been um, discontinued at least temporarily along uh, Cathedral Oaks uh, versus, you know, at least um, uh, some uh, uh, public transportation and bus lines uh, that exist in the neighborhood. So, I mean, just to offer that, I, you know, I, I think that there are a number of concerns. And, you know, I, you know, this is, like I said, an imperfect process. And I think, you know, it's, it's hard for us to, you know, it's not a science. It, it's not that there's not a formula. If if there's if there was a formula, then this would be a lot of a, a, an easier of a process uh, to to land on that. But that was just one of the concerns that I have. I I, I appreciate the other con, uh, other thoughts that were added about uh, proximity to the freeway and 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 the Cathedral Oaks. And it's not on Cathedral Oaks. That's the thing. It's it's off. It's it's in the neighborhood. Um, so. Those are some some of the issues that I had as well. So. Yeah, I don't I don't want to belabor this and you know have some sort of back and forth about it. But I'll add, I'll just note I don't see that distinction. I I don't think that one is more justifiable than the other. I agree with the the speakers, and uh, frankly, I think that we had and maybe this is a testament to having community um, turnout, but we had a big turnout from Dara. They uh, all came lined up, they all spoke, and I think that made a big difference. Uh, but um, as far as the physical differences of the two sites, I think the distinctions are minor. And, um, but I guess I would say ultimately, as uh, you, know, you pointed out, that um, 
we'll try when it gets to the project level to make choices that reflect uh, the area in question. And that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, I'm hopeful, do our best to make sure that uh, each of those sites, the, the, the development there is consistent with the physical capacity, whether that's the roads or the environment, et cetera. And, uh, you know, you guys indicated, the speakers indicated they weren't advocating for more density at DARA or believed that the site was particularly appropriate for more density, rather just what's the difference. Well, and I guess I would just say that in the end, maybe it'll come out, the results are, will be similar in terms of the actual density that emerges after we review the specifics of the project. So, thank you. And I will just comment that I was um, initially uh, supporting, I think when we did our straw votes, I think I was initially supporting the idea of um, it being high density. Um, but moving forward, um, at this point, I'm going to support staff's recommendation. And, um, and when we get to the next item, I have some closing remarks that I hope you'll all stay and listen to. Um, I, I debate whether I should do it now, um, but it really does express um, some imp an important message that I have to say. So um, I think with that, I did close the public hearing. Um, I guess we'll entertain a motion. Looks like there. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm happy to make the motion. Okay, Mayor Pro Tem. All right, um, I move that we adopt resolution number 23, next in line, entitled a resolution of the City Council of the City of Goleta, California, adding 625 Dara Road, APN 069373-064 to housing element 2023 to 2031, subprogram HE 2.1A and the Technical Appendix Residential Sites Inventory, case number 21-002-GPA, that we adopt resolution number 23 next in line entitled a resolution of the City Council of the City of Goleta, California, adopting a general plan amendment to facilitate medium density residential development at 625 Dara Road, APN 069-373-064, case number 21-0002-GPA, that we introduce and conduct first reading by title only and waive further reading of ordinance number 23, entitled 23 next in line, entitled an ordinance of the city council of the city of Goleta, California, amending title 17 zoning of the Goleta Municipal Code to change the zone district and standards for 625 Dara Road, APN 069-373-064, case number 23-0004-ORD, and that we make a determination that because a CEQA amendment addendum was considered as part of a separate action, no further environmental review is required for resolution number 23 next in line, resolution 23 next in line, and ordinance number 23 next in line pursuant to Public Resources Code section 21166 and state CEQA guideline section 15162.
5162. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Do I have a second? I'll second. Okay. Uh, roll call vote, please. Councilmember Kasdan. Aye. Councilmember Reyes Martin is recused. Councilmember Kiriako. Aye. Mayor Pro Tempo Richards. Yes. And Mayor Parodi. Aye. Okay. Ayes have it. We need to get Councilmember Reyes Martin back. Excuse me? Five minute break? Five minutes. <laughs> Okay, we're going to bring this meeting back to order. If you could read the item into the record, please. Uh, yes, that's item D3, adoption of one housing element, 2023-2031 amendments, and housing element subprogram HE 2.1A, B, and E, and two implementing amendments to the Goleta General Plan and Title 17 zoning of the Goleta Municipal Code case numbers 21-0002-GPA and 23-0004-ORD. Thank you. Ms. Wells, when you're ready. Good evening, Mayor, Council Members, and um, the public. Um, this is public hearing to um, consider the housing element 2023-2031 um, uh, revisions <coughs> and um, related actions and that we'll go over in a little more detail. So this, this is really the, the big item. I know, I know the other one, the rezones, of course, they're, 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 those, are, those are big. There's... there's um, more rezones in, in this one, the rest of the, the package of rezones included in this um, item. But I, I said that this is the big item because this is actually the revisions to the housing element that go beyond the, the um, rezones. And so we'll, and we're gonna summarize those tonight. It's kind of a, it's a long PowerPoint, but um, we'll go through it quickly. Um, and so I'll just jump right into the next slide. The hearing agenda is the same as, uh, as the, the ones that we just had um, with the presentation, questions, et cetera. Um, the next slide is that the topics. So we'll, we'll give a little background and we'll summarize the revisions and that will get you to the staff recommendation. And then the, um, the, the state requirements for the housing element. We didn't include this in the other slide, um, but just flagging that the housing element's a requirement in our general plan and that there's extensive legal requirements that we've been kind of grappling with in, with these changes to our housing element and that these updates occur every eight year and then ultimately the state oversight um, and housing element will, will result in certification and that's what we're um, shooting for because of the, um, the letter we just received from HCD. And so on the next slide, um, that's just giving you a rundown of the background of uh, how we got to where we are tonight. 
And that last bullet, I will just flag again that um, on October 16th, we re re did receive a drafting compliance. So the, um, the revisions that you're considering tonight did the trick for the state. And then with that certification, hopeful certification, if we adopt everything tonight, um, and we get a certification letter we'll be in the free and clear from Builders Remedy, for example, on February 15th. Um, we will uh, be implementing a, a housing element that will allow us to get grants um, and retain local control. So um, on, we'll just hop to the next slide and um, uh, Mr. Newkirk will cover the the, um, the substance of the revisions themselves. Thank you, Ann. Mayor and council members, um, this presentation, the staff report, is really driven by that March 20th letter that we got from the state on our adopted housing element. And so the amendments that we've proposed are really to reflect those comments that we received. So that's the structure of this presentation. And the HCD comments were broken into four categories, inventory of land, constraints, AFF, or affirmatively furthering fair housing, and some advisories. Um, that didn't necessarily require action on our part. And so under inventory of land, HCD had these four subcategories that they wanted the city to address, including realistic capacity, environmental constraints, non-vacant sites, and programs, and we'll touch on these individually in these subsequent slides. So in terms of realistic capacity, this really had to do with our underutilized sites that are currently zoned primarily non-residential. Um, and how the assumptions we make about those sites. So we added in detail about other regional examples of mixed-use conversions of non-residential sites to justify some of our assumptions. And then we also looked at our regulations as where we could facilitate that transition to mixed-use from some of our non-residentially zoned sites. Um, and so three program um, came out of that, and that includes looking at reducing the open space requirements for mixed-use residential, primarily if a site is being converted where that open space might not be feasible, um, how we can address that. Um, increasing the maximum residential development and community commercial from 12 to 20 units per acre, and that's similar to our other mixed-use zones, office and institutional and commercial old town. And then also increasing the height in commercial old town from 30 to 35 feet. And the idea there is that would better facilitate a three-story development with commercial on the first floor and two stories of residential. So this slide covers um, two of the subtopics in this area. One is environmental constraints. This HCD wanted us to further analyze our site's inventory for potential constraints, and so we added in a lot of analysis, and we removed some sites from the inventory as a result that we felt were too, um, potentially too constrained to include in our inventory. Um, <coughs> and then we also uh, provided further information about our non-vacant sites and justifying um, their inclusion in our inventory, and that led to the removal of some additional sites, some like along Kyrial where there's a pending proposal for an, an upgrade without residential. So knowing that they're looking to do continue to do non-residential, we, we pulled them out. And then we also moved our non-residential sites out of lower income, the assumptions. And that, again, was we, we felt we needed to do to, to justify the inclusion of those sites in the inventory. Um, and so that has had consequences in terms of our how the income category breakdown of our, our, of our sites in Monroe. We'll touch on that in a second. So the fourth part of this um, category, HCD essentially said, based on those three topics beforehand, you might need to amend your programs. Um, 
And so that really was the driver. As we looked at some of those constraints in our inventory and the removal of sites and the moving non-vacant sites out of lower income, um, that led us to a shortfall, primarily in lower income, um, that we needed to address. And so that's where we get to subprogram 2.1A. There is an existing subprogram 2.1A, but essentially is totally revamped and is now a really a land use designation and zoning change program. And so for purposes of this public hearing, um, it includes the sites, the sites bulleted on this slide, and we'll touch on each one of these in, um, in slides coming up here. Um, so these slides should look familiar. They're similar to what was um, presented for other sites and during the July study sessions. Um, this is actually two separate sites, two different owners, um, but they're two sites, 60 Calusa and 7020 Cayo Real, um, and they're currently zoned intersection commercial, so that includes like small markets, convenience stores, and gas stations are the type of available <coughs> uses. Um, and in the existing housing element, um, we assume 31 potential units on that site. Intersection commercial usually doesn't allow residential, but under some state law, new state laws, there is a potential to build on those sites already. And so that's why you see that 31 units. Um, and then under the proposed zoning, it would increase to 44 units, where 7020 Cayo Real is proposed for rezoning to community commercial, which is allow mixed use under our regulations, and 60 Calusa to RH. Um, 7190 Hollister is a partially developed site, and it's split zoned along Hollister, where the front, the frontage along Hollister is CG or general commercial, and the back is RM, medium density. Um, and the proposal here would be to change that designation to RH. So you, you can see we already counted the back half in our inventory, but this rezone would, would increase that um, unit count to 100, um, and so a net of 61 units. And then similarly, the, the parcels just to the east of 7190 are under the same ownership, have the same um, current designation zoning of CG on the frontage and RM in the back. These sites are completely vacant. Um, they are, because of the RM on the back half, they are, they were already in our inventory, but the unit count um, increases significantly with a proposed rezone to RH on the entire sites. Um, so you see a, a increase in 125 units if my math on the slide is right. Um, next up is 35 Old Station Drive, so a little further west along Hollister. Um, this is a um, currently vacant site. It has an entitlement for storage use. Um, and it's currently zone CG, um, but the change would be to high density residential. So this um, site would be new to, is new to the um, site's inventory be, and would see an increase in 146 units all at lower income. Next up is 6470 Hollister. And if you remember, we discussed this site some at the study session. It's vacant and the, there's a decision not to rezone it to or input not to rezone it to just a straight housing site, but to allow some flexibility so that there could be a commercial component, but also the ability to put in housing on the site. So the proposal is to change that site to community commercial, which again would allow that flexibility. And as a vacant site, we would be able to count it for 17 additional units at moderate and above moderate. And the reason we do that is because housing is not mandatory <coughs> on the site, so we can't count it towards lower income, even though it's a vacant site with allowed densities up to 20 units per acre. Next up is 7360 Hollister Ave. So this is three separate parcels under the same ownership. And the, um, 
primarily it's a vacant site, except for a couple residences at the far back that you would never see if you're going down Hollister. Um, but there are a couple units in the back there. Um, so it's currently zoned community commercial, so it could have housing on the site as part of mixed use. Um, but what we're proposing is um, high density residential on the entire parcel. So we did count it in the inventory previously, but not at lower income. And so now we're, it would count towards lower income and with 37 additional units towards our arena. Um, two sites in Old Town that are um, currently used for outdoor storage at 449 and 469 Kellogg Way. As you can see, one of the, the larger of the two parcels is actually zoned residential right now. Um, so it would be increasing the density, but not changing the kind of general uh, land use and zoning. And then the other one is business park. So under the existing housing element, the business park site is not, count, not counted towards any units. And the 469 Kellogg is counted for 25, but at moderate income, because it didn't have the default density needed to count towards lower income. And um, both sites are included for rezoning to high-density residential. And so that would include that would result in 73 lower-income units. So an increase in 48 units and moving some of those units to the lower-income category. Um, next, we have 490 South Fairview, or I think most people refer to it as the Yardie site. Um, so this, this is a little bit of a unique case where it's, it's currently designated business park and um, we're not proposing to change that base designation but include a housing overlay so that they could come in and convert to housing without creating a nonconformity in the meantime. Um, because of this, um, so we count 198 units in the inventory, none towards lower income because they are not obligated to build housing if they redevelop. Um, again, but if the units come in at lower income, they would count as we progress through the housing cycle. So that's a summary of the sites as part of this public hearing. Um, so we want to step back a little bit and look at our arena numbers and where that gets us with all these proposed rezonings. Um, so our, our six cycle arena, um, that's where we have to show capacity. The total is 1837. I think you've heard that number. Um, significantly, 1,006 of those units are lower income. So when we, when we move sites out of the lower income, the non-vacant sites out, and we're really trying to, to fill that gap at the lower income category. For, for calculation purposes, very low and low are consolidated as lower income. So when we refer to counting things as lower income, it's, it's a combination of that very low and low, um, those lo very low and low numbers. So the updated sites inventory table, I know there's a lot of numbers here, it may be hard to follow. Um, some highlights, the, the biggest numbers are at the, the bottom row. Um, so we'll start and kind of work backwards. Um, we, with these rezonings and our non-vacant underutilized sites and our approved projects and projected <coughs> ADUs, we have a surplus in all income categories, which is important. And we want to have some buffer so when projects come in, um, if they don't provide the, the affordability levels we assumed in the housing element, that we still have adequate capacity in our inventory. Um, so we have approved projects to account towards 328. We'll touch on a couple of those projects in subsequent slides. We also assume ADUs, and this hasn't changed um, based on the last several years since the state law significantly changed. We're projecting forward. Um, and then we have the existing sites, so those vacant and underutilized sites existing in the city, and then those sites to be rezoned. And you see, um, the, uh, particularly the vacant sites to be rezoned, 
um, now are a significant contribution to our lower income arena. Um, so that's, that, that shows the importance of those, those rezone sites in general. Um, between vacant and underutilized, um, you're over 800 units towards your 1,006 unit target. So these next couple slides are new, and we, we put them in to highlight. We've, we've, we've talked a lot, and we've historically talked a lot about like the underutilized, the rezone sites. But um, we also do have projects that, that we're counting as approved projects um, that count towards that, our six-cycle arena. So one of them is Heritage Ridge, 332 units, um, including 17 very low and 85 low. So when you're talking about lower income, you see a pretty big number count there, and essentially a third of the project is counted towards lower income. And then also Buena Tierra, which is a supportive housing project at uh, Fairview and Hollister, and that is 59 very low units and one above moderate, which is the, the on-site management unit. Um, so that, again, pretty big contribution to meeting our lower income RENA for the six cycle through these two projects. Um, here's, we've seen this map several times. This is from the housing element that shows our um, existing sites inventory plus the rezone sites. So you can kind of see the distribution. And just um, additive to that is um, the map typically doesn't, sh in our housing element, doesn't show the approved projects. So we just also wanted to highlight the two locations where we have those approved projects that um, are counting fairly significantly towards our fifth cycle arena. So that, that addresses that first category of HCD comments. The second is constraints, and this is where we look at what, what are the constraints, including local regulatory constraints to the development of housing. And HCD had three topic areas that they commented in that March 20th letter, land use controls, inclusionary requirements, and processing and permit procedures. Um, so land use controls, you think of kind of just the development standards in our general plan and zoning. And so we looked at, um, looked again at some of those land use controls to try to identify potential constraints. And out of that came several programs to implement changes to our land use controls. One is looking at shared parking, particularly to facilitate mixed use. Currently shared parking um, reductions um, require a major conditional use permit. And there, it's really based on a factual analysis. So there's a program to allow shared parking reductions at the staff level if the project is to be approved at the staff level, that it doesn't um, elevate the project just because of shared parking agreement. Um, the second is heights. And so um, we're amending the heights in planned residential um, and then medium and high density residential in the coastal zone to 35 feet. Inland, it's already 35 feet. But in the coastal zone, it's only 25 right now. And so that um, you know, could limit the development potential um, in the coastal zone. And then also in COT, we already mentioned this, the COT height change kind of kills two birds with one stone as it also identifies a potential land use control constraint. Um, and we already mentioned um, the, as well the open space, looking at revising the open space requirements for mixed use projects to facilitate those mixed use to, um, chain uh, swap outs essentially. Um, and then we also looked at densities and we mentioned before, and it is applicable here as well, the community commercial going from a max of 12 units per acre to 20 units per acre. And then also allowing for adjustments <coughs> of the density maximum through what we call an adjustment to a development plan. This is a purely discretionary approval that someone could seek. Um, currently, development plans, other types of 
Things like setbacks and heights can be adjusted, but density was not one of the listed standards that could be adjusted. Um, so um, we've included that as a potential adjustment to development plans. And then we also looked at lot coverage. This is something we heard very explicitly from HCD, um, that our current 40% lot coverage standard in high-density residential was too low. Um, and so um, we've increased that to 50%. Um, and, and so that, uh, that may pro provide for flexibility and development in other ways. So maybe it's a little more spread out, maybe a little lower, et cetera. Um, so that's something um, that was also included. We also wanted to understand better our inclusionary policy, and so we provided a lot more detail um, as to you know, related to several different items in our inclusionary and proposed one change to the policy and to our zoning regulations, and that is to allow alternative compliance by the review authority for the project. Um, and alternative compliance means something other than building the units on site, which is clearly the city's preference in the policy and in our zoning regulations. But right now, the way it's written, as adopted, only city council can approve alternative compliance. And so, so this would allow the review authority, whether it's city council, planning commission, zoning administrator, to, to make that approval. Um, the, third, the third part of this area is processing and permit procedures. And so we looked at our procedure, took another deep dive on our procedures and proposed some changes um, one is to remove the major conditional use permit for mixed use. All mixed use in the city now needs a major CUP, and so we're, we're, we've removed that. Um, and that just focuses on the use. So if there's a new physical development, they may still need a discretionary development plan, but not an additive additional discretionary permit. And if they're converting space now, they may be able to do it without that major CUP and that planning commission process. Um, also, um, included in the programs is an exemption for development plans for small mixed-use development. That's not defined. That'll be addressed through a subsequent zoning amendment that will go back through the hearing process what that threshold is. There currently is no, nothing explicit about which mixed-use projects don't need a development plan in our regulations. And then also to allow 100% affordable projects. So every unit is um, income restricted to be processed through ministerial review. So we don't see a lot of that, but um, as a potential incentive to, for a project that's really coming in and going way beyond anything we could otherwise require, they would get a, 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 a more straightforward process. Um, and then also there's a program to, to look at revi revisions to certain findings to create greater certainty as to the number of units a project may have um, in terms of kind of design. And then also a program to look at procedures for mapped ESHA changes um, so that they're not, um, they don't always elevate those ch a project that has a mapped ESHA change to city council. Because right now, um, regardless of how small a project would be to change that mapped ESHA, it would have to go to city council. Um, so there's a proposal, and again, the exact procedures of how that would work will be flushed out in a subsequent uh, zoning amendment. So we don't have the details of that, but that will get worked out through the public hearing process. Um, in terms of affir affirmatively furthering fair housing, there's a lot more detail in the technical appendix um, and a lot more analysis. Um, and you'll see in the housing element programs, HE 3.1, there's an updated matrix with a lot kind of reformatted um, summary and geographic, including ge sorry, geographic targeting and eight-year metrics. So again, um, 
ways in which we will track our progress over over the eight-year housing cycle. Um, we also included um, you know, execution of our diversity, equity, and inclusion plan. This is something that the city's already planning and is well in the works on, but it, it also addresses um, some of the concerns that HCD um, raised about affirmatively furthering fair housing, so we, we took credit for that. Um, and then we also include um, a commitment to continue infrastructure improvements in Old Town as that's a designated disadvantaged community in our city. Um, and then um, also some additional language about coordinating with nonprofits to identify and address issues of overpayment and displacement risk as those are two AFFH criteria that HCD specifically flagged um, for us. And then the last item is the advisors. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of them didn't require action, but one of them um, did, and that's a pro. And so we added a program um, to amend Title 17 to address emergency shelters. We've amended our emergency shelters regulations once earlier this year, but we're going to go back and do that again as the state law has changed fairly recently, and we need to provide greater flexibility in terms of zones in which emergency shelters will be allowed, and revisit some definitions to make sure that we're we're up to date on those um, requirements as the state law has changed. <coughs> so at this point, I'll hand it back to Ann Wells to discuss implementing land use element and zoning amendments. All right, so um, on the next slide, we can just jump right into it. So we, we um, have the housing element revisions that Mr. Newkirk just ran through, um, but we, we can't stop there. We have to make changes to um, other elements of the general plan and our zoning to effectuate the, the requirements. And um, you can see on the screen, we have to make changes to the land use element, to the standards, we have to make changes um, to the or to the tables, to the map. Um, we need to add a policy, policy language regarding the Yardi overlay. Um, and there's a, a note at the bottom that says accept Kenwood Village and Dara Road. And the, the reason that it says that is uh, because we already took action. You already took action on um, those two sites. So it's not included in that. And then the second part to the changes um, on would be in Title 17. So we have to add um, more detail on the high density residential district standards. We need to add detail about a change to the um, community commercial density from 12 to 20 units per acre. And then we need to break out the, the Yardi overlay, which, which we have attached in the um, staff report packet in the ordinance. And then we have, we have to change the zoning map. So that's just the same as the land use plan map in the, in the general plan. And we also have to change that zoning overlay map um, to include the um, RH overlay district for Yardi. So just little details that we have to take care of in order to make this happen. Um, and then the, um, the, the things that we have to do for that, for HCD just as a requirement to um, have these companion revisions in our regulations in the, uh, is re related to ministerial processing and, and, and allowed densities. So the, the first one, ministerial processing, um, would um, allow for ministerial processing that's driven by state law. So this, whether we had this policy or not, it, state law would supersede and we would have this in certain circumstances, ministerial processing. But we have objective design standards. If you remember, we had the, the grant to prepare those. We have those in place. 
and wow, uh, good thing, right? Because that, now we can re rely on objective design standards for these rezone sites that are accommodating the lower income RENA that have 20% of the units affordable to lower income. Um, yeah, and the, just flag, there's no, there's no discretion on these sites this, with state law. So full disclosure, there's limited DRB, there's you know no development plans, but again, we have chapter 1744 objective design standards, and I, I think we're, we're in pretty good shape considering um, we have that. And then for the 2.1E, which is the uh, allowed densities that allows um, development plan adjustments that are kind of like a modification um, to the maximum residential density standards. I, I think Andy mentioned the, the, the policy language on this, and this would be effectuating that. Um, and that revision would add density to um, height and lot coverage and building separation, et cetera, that's already in the zoning. Um, um, and then the decision is made by the, the review authority. Never mind that. That was a random note. Um, but but yeah, so that it's it's to um, allow that adjustment to the um, maximum density. And so that takes us to the staff recommendation. And um, there's a lot of actions that are, are listed here. <coughs> a couple of resolutions and a couple of ordinances. Um, we we had to break things out the you know the way they are because the planning commission took separate action due to a recusal on Kellogg, so that's why you, you see it broken out the way it is, um, and we are happy to take questions and um, it's a you know probably a lot to take in but it you know should be somewhat familiar to you, and um, uh, we're you know we're happy to take questions. Okay, um, council. Questions? Councilmember Kasdan. Yeah, uh, so first you mentioned there was uh, 1,006 that were lower income in total of the rezone sites. What percent of that is on Hollister <coughs> in Western Goleta? We, we don't have that number on hand right here. If you maybe give us a a minute and we can like do some quick math for you. Okay. Uh, another question I had was with respect to the mixed use changes that uh, you're proposing. One of the things that I've wondered about is um, the ability to divert traffic from um, the plethora of developments along Los Carneros. Uh, whether it's Heritage Ridge or villages at Los Carneros or et cetera, et cetera. There's a plenty of places, and right now they all have to go to Stork and Hollister, that direction to go shopping. The business park at the end of the road um, hypothetically could offer shopping if it were zoned appropriately. So with the changes that you're making, how can, is it something we can look at as a simple kind of uh, action that might entice a um, somebody with a food market to locate there and thereby divert traffic from, you know, where their level of service is brutal? Oh, we don't have um, that, that kind of change for Business Park. Uh, we left 
business park alone, so the allowed uses are what the allowed uses are. And at some point when we look at our land inventory and, you know, collectively we'll reassess when we do a general plan update and really look at our, our land uses, what's allowed, and is it meeting the needs as intended, um, and is that what the market is still demanding, and, and we'll do that. But we did not add... Um, we didn't change the business park allowed uses. So that part, that one across the street from the um, Islamic Center and so forth is um, right now would not be eligible for a market. Is that right? I believe I mean, that this would is not being topic. allowed to use. I guess we don't have yeah. to go into We have enough to talk about developing right now without, uh, <laughs> without uh, new developments. But I just would put that out on the table that we'll, when it comes time to thinking about how do we reduce the traffic to uh, some of those really congested areas, how do we reduce the level of service, uh, maintain rather, <laughs> the level of service, there are, you know, there'll be traditional mitigations of adding lanes and all the rest, but this might be another way of, of, of keeping traffic from going to that area. Uh, got uh, got a number for me? Councilmember Cousin, quick count would be five twenty-two lower income in west west of store. So five twenty-two out of so over fifty percent of our lower income rezones are in that stretch from Hollister from uh, uh, from Stork West on Hollister. That's right. That's a lot, isn't it? <laughs> kind of a rhetorical question, I guess. Um, I just want to highlight that fact. And um, as part of when we talk about the reason that we're going to look at the cumulative impacts, when the things that we talked about, close your ears, um, you know, don't, don't listen. Uh, but when we talk about uh, the... Um, analyzing the traffic patterns to include the cumulative impacts on the level of service. Uh, when we look at going forward, how do we manage those properties? That's a lot, and that's going to have a big impact. And right now, we already have a really congested area. We have a congested area so much on in that corner that we have a, a, a CIP project that is not one of our current projects, but we have an existing CIP project is to add a lane to Hollister by Stork. We also have another CIP project which is adding, which is expanding Stork, adding lanes. And obviously the juxtaposition of where we are reducing the number of lanes in Old Town in order to make it safer, but concurrently re increasing the number of lanes in West uh, the west side in order to accommodate more traffic and more housing seems um, misplaced. So all of this is to say that um, I am very, I am hopeful that the analyses that we do as we go forward and look at these issues are going to adjust the projects when it comes to the, when it comes to the project level analysis we are going to be open to reducing those to the extent that it maintains the traffic and rely upon the 
sites like Yardi and others to accommodate that and thereby, as much as we can, kind of maintain our integrity, our goals, not I know we're being imposed upon by the state. You know, I'm fully aware of the mandates the state is forcing us into, but to the extent that we're able to mitigate it in some fashion or another, seize some control over the, you know, the visions that we have, the goals that, the way we believe the city should look, as much as we can, I hope we can seize that. So, thank you. Councilmember Carriaco, question? Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Just a couple of questions. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about the item H HE 3.1F uh, to continue the infrastructure improvements? Can you be a little bit more specific about what infrastructure improvements we're referring to? Councilmember Kiriaka, that could run the gamut of kind of CIPs from sidewalk improvements to the bigger kind of extending equal. Sure. Um, I mean, we're, you know, the metrics are to, to continue to complete CIPs in Old Town, which is, you know, there's some bigger projects, there's some smaller projects, but things have been completed there. And so it's really to continue, um, continue that, that effort. Okay. Thanks. I, I bring that up just because there's two projects in our housing element site inventory that are immediately adjacent to Equal, but it, it can't be used as a thoroughfare without the extensions. And so when they eventually get to their project-specific analyses and any CEQA that might need to be done on traffic, having those improvements done and planned versus not, you get two different kind of equations, which might result in two different types of um, decision about going forward with a housing project. So I just wanted to bring that up. Um, and then on HE2.1B, there was, um, can, you, can we bring that slide up? Can you give us uh, the... It was a few it. slides back. Uh, you just found it. The ministerial processing and allowed densities. So on the objective design standards for sites rezoned to accommodate <laughs> lower income arena, uh, where the project proposes 20% of units for lower income households, I think I might be wrong about this as I think about it a little bit more, but is there also an allowance if it's 100% moderate? I'm not sure about that. There's a, there's a lot of nuances in state law there. Um, but, I, but yeah, that... I, I, that might be a density bonus. Okay. I mean, there's still, so the, this doesn't cover I, everything getting, that's in state late, law. And state law is going to change again. That's the hesitation on even like putting stuff in, in the housing elements because state law is going to change and then in whatever we write, kind of like density bonus. Mm -hmm. If we're too specific, then we're just going to be constantly updating the density bonus okay. um, details. Can you bring up, for my final question, can you bring up the map that had um, all the different sites throughout the city? Uh, including the sites, in, yeah, there, I think we just had it. So um, I just want to point out in our, in, our, in our sites inventory, they're not rezones and they're not lower income, but there are quite a few sites that are helping us to achieve our other housing goals for our arena that we're not talking about so much. Um, but they're getting us to that magic number of 1837. Can you just talk about some of 
some of the larger sites in our inventory that are helping us to achieve the non-lower income. Um, I think Fairview Plaza might be one, Kyrie Center. Councilmember Kiriako, um, a lot of the, the green sites here are gonna be your commercially zoned, but that allow mixed use, and that gets back to changing some of those constraints out to incentivize perhaps okay. redevelopment or adding units where something, you know, site maybe over park um, or converting part of a site. Um, so some of the bigger ones is Fairview Plaza. That counts for quite a few units because that's like 17 acres, something like that. Um, and we, we count 50% of the max, so that's 17 times 10 um, that we counted in the inventory of underutilized sites. And so, yeah, we also include along Kyrial, some of Kyrial. We pulled out some of it because they've come back in for kind of an upgrade without residential um, on the kind of the eastern half of it, um, generally speaking. Um, but a site like where the old Santa Barbara Motorsports was, for instance, uh, could be a site for mixed use and quite a mm -hmm. bit of residential. Um, and yeah, thank you. Thank you for bringing it up. The, the reason I bring it up, and, and there's, you know, you can see there's other sites in, in the other districts too, um, you know, uh, north, of, north of the freeway, kind of to the east, and on both sides of the, um, both sides east and west below the freeway, there's a lot of, lot of those green too. Uh, the, the reason why that matters, and, and we've been criticized for this, um, we were criticized for putting sites in our sites inventory um, without having like ironclad, signed, sealed, delivered owner interest in definitely building something in the next eight years. And when we originally submitted our housing element uh, as a draft and then when was, we adopted it, uh, we were trying to make the argument, to counter the argument that you must have owner interest. We were trying to make the argument of, before you can have owner interest, you must have owner opportunity. <laughs> if it's not possible, why would an owner be interested? And I wanna bring this up because this has been completely lost in this entire discussion. This state law until very recently allowed us to plan for housing where we think it makes sense. Transportation corridors, uh, more built areas, putting people in housing closer where people work and play, right? The state this time compromised. I don't know if we convinced them, but I think we at least persuaded them that it was possible that a shopping mall, a office park, some of these other sites that are in our inventory could yield more housing. And I think we were ultimately right, and I wanna give staff a lot of credit for this, uh, because we did get some criticism in the community. It was called generic, and we didn't think it through, and, all these things for any media that might be listening. Um, at the end of the day, I want to acknowledge that you were proven right by the state of California when they allowed you to at least put those sites in our inventory for moderate and above moderate housing. I think that's very important because the I see some smiling in the audience, but if we were having to rezone at a much larger number because we didn't have these sites in our inventory, we'd be having a different conversation here today. The work of our staff to at least win the, the argument that these are viable housing sites, even if they're not viable lower income housing sites, was a really important accomplishment by your team. And I think you all deserve a lot of credit for that. And I just wanna say that in this space before this hearing was over. Thank you for doing that because that allowed us to have a different kind of conversation about rezoning where we could basically fill in the gaps 
and get to our lower income arena through rezoning. It would have been a much more difficult challenge. Thank you. I'm done. Any other questions? Then I will open the public hearing. Madam Mayor, uh, technically under rules of decorum, we're supposed to take a vote to keep going past 10. So would oh. you mind just sort of, we, we can keep going. We just need the vote, technically. Okay. So somebody would like to make a motion that we stay, uh, we finish? <laughs> I, I move that we stay till we're finished, although I suspect we're getting close. Okay. And do we have a second? And do we all agree? Okay. All right. <laughs> we're moving on. Councilmember Kasdan. Oh, are we, we're formally voting on the same? No, no, we're, I thought we were, oh, we're voting. Oh, okay, we're not voting on this. We're voting on staying. Staying later. Done. Okay. okay, please. Yeah. Aye. <laughs> Councilmember Reyes Martin. Aye. Councilmember Curiaco. Aye. Mayor Pro Tempo Richards. Yes. And Mayor Brody. Aye. Okay, we're staying until this is done. Okay, so now um, the public. Yes, if any member on the Zoom webinar wishes to speak to this item, please use a raised hand icon <laughs> and I will call on you. Our first speaker is Dr. James Wolf. Thank you for this opportunity to speak. I'm a local doctor and I have a staff, of course. <coughs> <coughs> And I pay my office manager $35 an hour, and she can't afford to live here. So she's quitting after 20 years with me and moving to Victorville. And uh, I'm trying to hire someone else who actually lives in a community. I've been advertising for six months, and I don't even have an applicant. And every day, there are 10,000 people on the freeway coming from Oxnard so that they can work here who are spending an hour and a half on the freeway coming and an hour and a half going, basically affecting their family relationships and their health and polluting the air and having extra expense for gas just to provide our businesses with the support personnel that we need to keep our businesses going. And this is really a travesty that we're shortchanging ourselves of the services that we need and the more people that we have come to this community who are upper income, the more of these people are required. So we really desperately need to have low income housing so that we can have a whole community. We don't have a whole community. We have a bunch of wealthy people who demand all these services, but then we have a bunch of slaves that are on the freeway every day to provide these services and as a local business, we have almost an impossible task of keeping our businesses going. And this is really a failure of the community to be providing the personnel that we need to run our businesses. And on another note, we have a project going to build low-income housing at 449 and 469 South Kellogg Way. And this is supposed to be underutilized property, but it's fully utilized property. There are 196 storage units there, completely occupied with work trucks, trailers, boats, our recreational vehicles and trailers and all other types of vehicles. 
And I just happened to be occupied with one of those buildings on that site, running a nonprofit organization, and I've had to move six times in the last 15 years because of the lack of availability of low-cost commercial property for nonprofit organizations, and I'm building clinics in Afghanistan, and this is really going to be very difficult if this property gets converted into low-income housing, and where are those 196 vehicles and stored units going to go in the city? There's nothing available. There's nothing available. There's nothing available in Ventura. There's nothing available in Carpinteria. These people are going to have to access Santa Paula or Santa Maria. And how is that going to help me store my boat and my trailer? So this, that project and this property should not be considered for development. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is April Reed, and we have four more speakers. Okay, hello again. Uh, I want to clear up something that has been going around for months and is not true, and I just want to clear it up right now. Um, and it has to do with, and I'll try and keep this general, has to do with whether Baker Lane and Tuolumne are single-family housing or high-density housing. I've been reading from friends of people with vested interests and having them come here and say that Baker Lane and Tuolumne is high-density housing. It's not true. And these people, maybe even tonight, are from Hope Branch. Beautiful Hope Branch, but they don't know anything about where we live. I've lived in Baker Lane for before it was Baker Lane for 55 years, and I am very familiar with this area. The other person who spoke is also from Baker Lane, and we know it's single-family housing. Um, and I kind of don't appreciate people coming here and telling me it's high density when it isn't. You can all look for yourselves. Figure it out for yourselves. Don't take my word for it. Don't take other people's words for it. And with all due respect, <laughs> Sorry, but you know it's bad enough when people come here and represent something that isn't true. But when a council member says, I think I don't remember the exact word, but he said it's up for debate about whether um, it's high density or single family. It's not up for debate. House is a house. It's either single family or it's high density. It's no debate. So I would encourage you all to look for yourselves at the neighborhood that is being considered. And like I said, I fully expect people to come in and say, you know, that it's high density when it isn't, but please don't fall for it. Look it up for yourselves. Do not take my word for it. Um, I've been hearing, like I said, I've been reading these comments and hearing these things at these meetings for months, and I'm really tired of people characterizing my community inaccurately, just to get ahead. All right, um, I'll, I'll go with heights. Um, 30, 35 feet is way too high for um, certain areas, especially when there is single family, single level uh, housing. Um, you know, it's kind of creepy to think of people looking in people's windows especially if there are children that are um, 
living in those houses. So I would please consider either moving it back past 20 feet for some of these properties or um, lowering the 35 feet limit. Thank you. I'm sorry. Thank you for listening to my rants. Thank you. Our next speaker is Michelle Owen. And a reminder for those on the Zoom webinar, which is to speak to this item, please use the raised hand icon and I will call on you. Hi, Mayor, Council Members, City Staff. Uh, the Goleta City Zoning Ordinance claim to protect and promote the public health, safety, peace, comfort, convenience, and general welfare. How is rezoning a commercial intersection and building high-density housing in an already highly congested single-home community that would add more people, driving cars, parked cars, going to protect and promote public health and safety? It won't. I am all in for finding safe and smart solutions to our community's housing needs. I am not for building high-density housing at the expense of our community's safety. I live on this street. I know the traffic is already unsafe. I see the accidents. I hear the sirens all too often. I'm here to ask for the Calusa Avenue proposed rezoning and building of high-density housing to be denied. Why not mid-density? Why high density? Please separate this property from the others in the amendment if you must, but the amount of units the Planning Commission has proposed is way too high for this small property that is appropriately zoned commercial intersection because that's what it is, an intersection between businesses and a single home community. There are currently five homes with the Calusa Avenue address. How is adding 39 more units cohesive with our single home community. It's not. As I have mentioned, if this proposal is not denied, there will be more traffic issues. I already can't pull out of my driveway and make a left at certain times of the day because the stop sign 120 yards away from my house is backed up with cars trying to get on to Glen Annie. And you can just forget about trying to make a left turn. Where are the 39 to 80 plus cars going to park? Are the roads going to be expanded? What are you going to do about the infrastructure if this passes? Will the parking lot have to face the gas station and the mini mart? Because after decades of living in our beautiful community, we shouldn't have to walk out our front door and stare at a parking lot. This is Goleta, not Los Angeles. What about the noise of the 39 to 100 plus new neighbors? How much noise will that create? Will the electric and water utilities be able to keep up? There is no water meter at Calusa Avenue, but there are owls, red-tailed hawks, and egrets that hunt every year. This space is not large enough to support the residential high-density housing zoning and the people, traffic, cars, parking it would bring. HDH would also bring a nuisance to the community, both public and private. Private for noise and less privacy, public is the traffic, and even worse, the negative impact, it will also reduce the value of our homes and the reduction of the quality of our life. This particular property should not be approved for these reasons. I hope you, the city council members, will do the job you were elected to do and say no to this outrageous 39 unit proposal. Tell the planners to go back to the drawing board and do better for our city's residents. Come up with a safe, smart, cohesive plan that will benefit all the community 
without making an already unsafe area more dangerous for the students and residents that already live here. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Richard Foster. Just a reminder for those on the Zoom webinar, please use the raised hand icon. If you'd like to speak to this item, and I will call on you. Yeah, the bad news is I just saw 15 people pull in the parking lot. I think want to speak to this. They've been waiting. Uh, you know, if I was a business owner in town, I'd be advocating for builder's remedy. I mean, these guys come up and say, oh, we got to maintain control. No, they don't because they want housing for their employees. I mean, it's, it's kind of this weird thing. It's like, oh, not in my backyard. But then they go, oh, but don't screw the city up too badly. I mean, not advocating for builder's remedy. I'm just saying from a business owner's standpoint, we should just be letting it go because then we have 10-story buildings and everybody can afford to live here. But I, I would say on Calusa, aside from being a lousy location, I would suggest <coughs> making a cap on it of 20 uh, the same way that they've done on, on Kenwood because certainly 39 on that parcel plus there's a lot, you know. We can say we'll all be cut down when we come to the actual project. If you slap a cap on it right now of the low end, then at least when the discussion starts, it's starting at 20 per acre not at 30 per acre. Um, I do have a question, if anybody can answer it lately, on the HE21, the bonus density. So is it possible that everything we've looked at tonight, if they go 20% low income, could all be up 50%, which is the number I think came up during the shop, uh, the workshops last summer. So that, you know, if somebody comes in at this 20%, does that mean that the 39 could suddenly be 50-something, that Kenwood could be back to 286, that, um, you know, so perhaps staff could answer that if you guys are willing to give them time. Thank you. Thank you. And our last speaker is Karen Lovelace. Yeah, these are, these are scary numbers indeed. So tonight, Ann Wells said about recommending um, medium density for DARA, which I think I heard medium density is 12 to 20, which sounds a lot better for Calusa than 39 units on 1.2 acres with potentially, what, 50. Um, she said, we have a surplus, so that works for us. So I'm just hoping that maybe medium density for Calusa would work for, work for her. Um, raising the height limit in the coastal zone ah, of everything. Don't do that. Don't do it. I mean, you know, Goleta the Good Land, Goodbye Mountain Views. Well, what's this place going to be like? Does anybody realize, I mean, gotten a picture of build out, what it's all going to be like? You know, remember when the buzzwords were jobs, housing imbalance. Does Goleta still have one? I don't hear anybody talking about it anymore. Do we? Smart growth. Well, smart growth would say everything goes on Hollister. I don't want that. And I just, oh, oh, about, um, about the Kenwood site. So the high density, and it's not high density, on the west side of the Kenwood Village uh, site is the Brookside condos. That's about the densest thing around there. And I think uh, when that was, uh, boy, that, that all looks really good at this point compared to what's being proposed. I think Brookside is eight units per acre, but it's got a lot of green space. It's very nice. Yep. 
So eight units, that's you know a far cry from 30. Um, and I also, I just checked the mileage. I don't know, I'm, I'm really not trying to dump on Dara. Trust me, I'm really not. But um, Dara is 0.9 miles from TJ's, that'd be Trader Joe's, 0.9. Albertsons, where you don't have to pay $100 to belong, Albertsons is 1.4 miles to Kenwood. So, you know, if we're talking about access to services, this whole thing is all screwed up. Thank you. Do we have any other speakers? No, that concludes public comment for this okay. item, Mayor. So I'll go back to council if we have any more questions. Yeah, I guess my we could not. I just wanted to. I agree as far as uh, Calusa that the the density there is really excessive for the site, and uh, you know at the time we didn't really focus on it too much. There were other things, and we didn't because it was a small number. It didn't get that kind of attention, and we didn't have that sort of analysis. So just to be clear, first, we can't put a cap on like we did to um, Kenwood at this point without triggering a whole reevaluation by HCD. Is that correct? Uh, that's probably correct, Council Member. Um, but remember that it's a range, so there's the 39 is the upper end. Um, of the range, uh, I didn't do the math on the 20 unit per acre calculation. Um, so there is uh, some flexibility with the um, density. I mean, I guess what I would say is we have to at least, we probably have to put our, is this correct, our hope that it'll be better off in the project level analysis that will be attentive to the traffic impacts, the environmental impacts, and so forth. That it, are we, I would assume it's risky to try and adjust the, the project stuff now. Is that correct? I think that's, that's correct, because we are running up against the, the timeline, and HCD has uh, approved our revisions. Yeah. It's unfortunate, uh, but I guess the one thing, tell me if this is correct, that in a sense, unlike some other areas where there's a big, like 7190 or something like that, whether we're talking about 300 units, reducing 39 in half, for example, means only finding know, 15 or 20 units elsewhere, such as at Yardy or somewhere else that'll offset it, that relatively speaking, it's not as challenging a task to do if we feel that the environmental situation there merits reducing it, it's, the surplus is, is certainly going to be adequate to accommodate it. Is that fair? We, we haven't run the analysis on the surplus if we were to remove the site out. 
It is a smaller number. No, not remove it out. No, I'm not saying or, or remove it out. I'm not saying change our plan. I'm just saying when the time comes and we do our environmental analysis and, and CEQA and so forth for the project itself. So when we're down the road doing the project analysis and we look at it and say the traffic really is unacceptably dense there, the level of service is really inappropriately congested, it's not safe. Finding an offset for that, if we say we need to reduce it by 15 units, let's say, finding that 15-unit offset should be relatively easy. Mayor and Councilmember Kasdan, um, we do, as you saw previously, have a substantial buffer uh, in all income categories, so there is room to work with. And we, this is downstream. We would have to see what right. application came in the door, what the property owner there even proposed. They may not propose at that level, so it's a little bit hard to speculate uh, at this point. But I think um, there, there will. I'm, I'm confident in our permit process that we will look at it from all angles. That there will be opportunity for public input, and that there'll be um, th there'll be uh, um, flexibility in in how we approach it. Okay. I guess what I'm saying in short is I am sorry that we're in the situation that we are, uh, but we'll do the best that we can as we go forward. Just a, a clarification. Under the current zoning, how many units are allowed there? My understanding is it's allowed right now with the existing zoning. If we didn't rezone it, my understanding is that it's allowed up to 26 units right now. Uh, Councilmember Kuriako, that's correct. We we included 26 units in our adopted housing element at Calusa. And that's not under, not under our regulations. That would be um, if the site availed themselves of recent changes in state law that went into effect July 1st. Okay. My second question, and probably my final question, what would – so if we, if we upzone it to RH, what's the low end of the range versus the high end? The high end, I think, is 39. What's the low end? We're doing the math right now. I think it's actually 26. I think it is, too. So you could actually get the exact same project at either density. But, but just to finish my question, my understanding is we can't get any lower income Rena unless we change the zoning, right? We can't That's get any. Correct. Okay. Um, oh, hold on a second. Right. If you look at the units with the current zoning, Mm -hmm. um, there's 26 lower income because it's a vacant site. Um, and the way it's counted with the state law is at the right density. I see. Okay, thank you. Okay. Any other questions? Okay. Um, go into deliberations, and I'd like to kick this off. I have some prepared mom um, comments that I've taken me a while to get Get it right. Um, Pardon me, Madam Mayor, did you close the public hearing as well? I did. Didn't I just close the public hearing? I'm closing the public okay, hearing. Thank you. So <laughs> now I did. Thank you. Thank you for always reminding me. Thanks. Okay. Um, you know, most of the time, um, I, along with um, my fellow council members, find a great honor enjoy in fulfilling our diverse responsibilities as Goleta's elected um, officials. Typically, we believe our votes align with the public's trust and contribute to the realization of our Goleta's general plan. 
However, tonight marks an exception. And casting my vote, vote feels unavoidably reluctant. It's disheartening that the state housing mandates, however well-intentioned, clash with the desire of many residents, especially those of us seeking carefully managed growth. Unfortunately, despite our hard work and dedicated staff's best interests, thank you for all your work on this, the state rejected our numerous efforts, and there were numerous efforts, to exclusively rely on existing zoning for housing. And it's regrettable that their directives may not align with the personalities of our neighborhoods. One troubling consequence of these mandates is the erosion of cooperative spirit. I'm concerned that they pit Goleta districts against each other, our city against the county, and all of us against the state, just at a time that cooperation is needed most. Regarding some assertions that two districts lack representation due to staggered council elections, I disagree. I'm confident that each council person here is committed to addressing the interests of all residents across the entire city, not just within a specific district. As tonight's public participation underscores, Gleetons have been actively engaged, and we thank you. Your voices have resonated today through numerous public hearings, workshops, and many other avenues, including um, such as emails. However, after this testimony, including today, I'm convinced that not approving these rezones in this housing element would expose our city to significant financial and regulatory risks that we really cannot afford. Therefore, reluctantly, I will vote to approve this motion. You know, the state has this crazy idea that a cookie-cutter approach will work for all of us, and it's unfortunate, and that's what I'm here to say. But I want you to know it's essential to note that approving these rezones doesn't signify a single approval of any development. We will have process in place to address the impacts of new housing. Each housing project must still undergo the application review process, including a CEQA compliance. The city will retain the authority to impose permit conditions tailored to each site. Residents will still be able to weigh in on individual project where um, discretion uh, permits, discretionary permits, or discretionary permits are required, excuse me. We will, um, we will, we can and we will, um, per, where permitted, require appropriate environmental protections. I think you have an, a council at this time that are very concerned about our environmental protections. Traffic reduction measures. We also care deeply about traffic and safety. <laughs> That's how I got started being an advocate. 
um, and infrastructure improvements. These are all things that we are very passionate about. The city will mandate appropriate permits, fees, and mitigations to offset the unique impacts associated with every new development. So with that, um, in the coming months and years, I'm committed to ensure that development in Goleta aligns with our general plan as much as possible, and I encourage everyone to stay actively engaged, not just now, but be involved, and especially in the future, um, as you have been so far. Thank you. Oh, no, no clapping. <laughs> no clap. I told them. I told them. Did I not? No clapping. So, no, that's just something from the heart that I needed to say. Okay, where are we at? I closed the public hearing. I, I think we're. I have a comment. Uh, Council uh, Deliberations, I see um, your name. Uh, well, you know, just to be brief, I've talked a lot already, and I'm not going to add too much, but just to point out, we are responding to the state on this, and that is, um, you know, as I indicated, it's we're eating, we're eating a crap sandwich, and we're just deciding on our condiments. Uh, that it's. You know, I'll bet you everyone here remembers when they were growing up a lot, a forest, a field, or something like that that got developed. And I'll bet you it's a recollection that each and every person shares at some point remembering a place where they played or they went by a stream or something like that. And it's sad that we have to be, in a sense, the authors of the development like that. Um, having said that, I do recognize we do have a housing issue, too. And our challenge has been how do we, you know, uh, accommodate the needs for housing? How do we accommodate the state as it imposes itself upon us? And how do we preserve as much of the community's character as we can as we go along? I certainly, I did not run for office to see, um, you know, to create a new um, Hollister Village or something like that. And that was partly why seeing the, that, that development there as it blocked the landscape, as it, we added a traffic light 50 feet or something from the other traffic light, uh, was partly why I ran. And so here we are now. And uh, I guess I'll just say that, uh, yeah, we have to support it. I will support this. And um, I hope as much as we can, we take advantage of the potential of the discretion that we have as we go along to, to manage our process in the most effective way for the community and the, in the way that preserves our values. Thank you. Councilmember Kayako. Madam Mayor, and thank you, Councilmember Kasten. Um, so I want to begin by thanking our staff. Um, they've spent the past several years working on this process, um, going back to even before we received the final housing allocation from SB CAG in 2021. 
so much of our housing conversation as a city these past um, nine months or so, since we got the March letter from State HCD, uh, that really kick-started this rezone process has been about um, fairness. And so I, I'd like to begin my comments just by going back to the beginning um, on this housing element cycle. The State of California Department of Housing and Community Development handed down a mandate to Santa Barbara County to plan for 24,856 new housing units over the next eight years, between 2023 and 2031. 14,881 of those were assigned to the South Coast. The unincorporated um, county uh, on the South Coast, City of Goleta, City of Carpinteria, and the City of Santa Barbara. Of those 24,856 units, the City of Goleta received 7% of them. 7%, 1,837 units. It could have been a lot higher because at SBCAG, the five supervisors and eight mayor, mayors got together and they said that two thirds, because of the jobs housing imbalance that was referenced earlier, there were jobs, but not, not a lot of jobs, but not enough housing in the South Coast. So two thirds of the housing needed to come from the South Coast. Our 1,837 units was 12% of the South Coast allocation, 12%. The city of Santa Barbara got more than 50%. They got 8,001 units. The unincorporated county received 4,142 units to distribute between Isla Vista and Carpinteria. The state has made rules and pa passed legislation that makes it so local jurisdictions need to accommodate more housing if they produce more jobs and contribute to what is called the jobs housing imbalance. I bring this up because if it wasn't for the work of Ann Wells and Andy Newkirk and Peter Imhoff and the advocacy of our mayor, Paula Prodi, at the SBCAG board, we'd be having a very different conversation today. And I think that the reason why, as much as it hurts to say, wow, we got so much, the reason it wasn't worse is because of a couple factors. One. Goleta, as we mentioned before, has a track record of actually not just talking about housing, but actually building it. If you look at our last RENA cycle, we, we, uh, we actually built more units um, than, we, than um, was the actual requirement. Um, between 2010 and 2020, we built three times as much housing as Santa Barbara, four and a half times as much as Carpinteria. So I think the advocacy of our mayor the hard work of our staff, and the fact that we've actually been providing housing is why this wasn't a more difficult task, as difficult as it was. And so I think that we can agree that while getting twice as many units as the 900 units we got last time was a challenge, it could have been a bigger challenge. And so as we move into these next eight years, uh, you know, we have to contend with a state that's less concerned with how one element of our general plan, the housing element, works with the other state mandated elements like the land use plan, the land use element, and the transportation element, and all the other elements, and is more concerned with just getting to 1,837 or else. That is gonna be a real challenge for us in the next, next eight years. It's why we had to make a lot of the tough decisions that we've made. Um, but I also wanna acknowledge the way that we're getting to those 1,837 units 
um, is, is ultimately, at the end of the day, a good strategy. We're getting 152 units from accessory dwelling units. We're getting 398 units from projects already approved, mostly in the eastern end, I might add, um, east of Los, Car Los Carneros to the east, um, and in my council district, because I know there's been a lot of consternation about whether or not a council member lives in a particular district and was elected by that district, that that may have played some kind of role in how the zoning was chosen and why sites got picked the way they were. I'll just point out that I was elected to a district and my district ended up having more units rezoning, not just actual housing built, but rezoning than some other, <laughs> other uh, districts. The district lines are arbitrary. We were all elected to represent all of you. We're all trying to do the best that we can. It's a really difficult challenge with the, the state changing the rules essentially every year to the point where when we tried to actually start this process, I remember the, the meeting with Director Imhoff and, and Ms. Wells and Mr. Mr. Newkirk being told that the guidebook that HCD gives to cities for how to update their housing element was actually out of date. They hadn't updated yet. The state had not caught up to its own legislation. And we're supposed to make a housing element out of that. So the professionalism, the dedication of these folks in this room um, should not be lost. In the, and I say that knowing that there have been those that have tried to lampoon the work of this council and this staff and say, oh, we, we need to get better staff or we should have tried harder or whatever. These people worked their butts off and they were damn effective. And they got through a housing plan that if we support it today, has assumptions in it about non-vacant sites contributing towards getting to our moderate income housing, that other jurisdictions, if they had availed themselves of the strategy these folks authored, it would be a little bit different in some other places and they would have an easier time. So I just wanna put that out there. Um, in closing, I'll just say there's times when we're four districts and there's times when we're one city with one future. And no more is that true than when it comes to housing because we have a responsibility to provide for all of our employers, all of our residents, the best possible community. And all we can do is the best we can with the information we have, with the rules the state gives us, the laws that the state passes, and um, our ability to make decisions based on facts rather than fear. And I'm really proud of this council. I'm especially proud of my mayor for, for what she just said um, and the work that she did for us. So thank you. Council member Reyes-Martin. Thank you. I made a lot of my comments earlier, so I'll just keep it brief because it's late. Um, but I will also just echo my appreciation for our, our planning staff. Um, I know that they care deeply about Goleta. Um, so I know that they have been working really hard to navigate a really difficult and challenging process over these last months and probably truly years in preparation to get us to today. So um, I do want to just again publicly thank all of you um, for all of your hard work. Um, and then just very simply, you know, it's always nice when I can say, you know, I'm with her. You know, she, uh, could, I could not have said it better. So thank you, uh, Mayor Brody. And that's it. Okay, I'm not seeing any more. And I did close the public hearing. I think we're ready to make a motion. Excuse me?
I move that we adopt resolution number 23 entitled a resolution of the City Council of the City of Goleta, California, adopting the housing element 2023 through 2031 amendments to the general plan coastal land use plan case number 21-0002-GPA adopt resolution number 23 entitled a resolution of the city council of the city of Goleta, California amending the general plan coastal land use plan to implement housing element 2023 through 2031 subprograms 2.1a b and e case number 21-0002-GPA uh, C, introduce and conduct first reading by title only and waive further reading of ordinance number 23 next in line entitled an ordinance of the city council of the city of Goleta, California, amending title 17 zoning of the Goleta municipal code to change the zone district and standards for 449 Kellogg way parentheses APN 071-130-039 and 469 Kellogg way APN 071-130-010, case number 23-0004-ORD. D, introduce and conduct first reading by title only and waive further reading of ordinance number 23 next in line entitled, an ordinance of the City Council of the City of Goleta, California, amending various provisions of Title 17 zoning of the Goleta Municipal Code to implement certain housing element 2023 through 2031 programs, including rezoning of specific properties, case number 23-0004-ORD. And E, make a determination that because a CEQA addendum was considered as part of a separate action, no further environmental review is required for resolution number 23 next in line, resolution 23 next in line, ordinance number 23 next in line, and ordinance number 23 next in line, pursuant to public resources code section 21166 and state CEQA guidelines section 15162. Do I have a second? I'll second that. Okay. Any more discussion? I don't think so. I think we're ready for a roll call vote. Councilmember Kasdan. Aye. Councilmember Reyes Martin. Aye. Councilmember Kiriako. Aye. Mayor Pro Tempo Richards. Yes. And Mayor Perotti. Aye. It's unanimous. The ayes have it. Thank you. Okay. <coughs> it's late, but it says we could still have council comments. Or, Ms. Garibaldi, do you have a report? Nothing tonight, Mayor. Okay. Then. I will say this meeting is adjourned. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>